Craig Maud, welcome to the talk show for the first time, right? Uh, please tell me I'm <laughs> not forgetting. <laughs> yeah, definitely the first time. First 300 time. And some ep- 300 and some episodes in, I'd, I'd start to worry. It's crazy, man. I can't believe you've done 311 of these things. Yeah, especially at my pace. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 30 years of podcasting, you'll get there. I, but I've been meaning, you and I have been pals for a long time. Uh, I, I, I suspect that uh, more than usual on my show, there might be a fair number of listeners who are not familiar with you, or oh. maybe only tangentially so. Mm. I mean, I certainly link to you on Daring Fireball semi-frequently, but you're not part of the regular Mac punditry mm. crowd. So tell, tell everybody about yourself a little. I never know. I always just tell people I'm a writer. That's like to, to simplify. I, I like that. I like that answer too. I don't. I actually don't know where where you were raised. Uh, somewhere in America, right? Yeah, um, over near Hartford, Connecticut. Mm. But you've lived in Japan now for twenty years. Twenty going? Yeah, 20, we're on year twenty one right now. So you went there for university, stayed. Yep. Um, and you now run special projects, which is, we have to, such a good name, but also such a terrible name, right? <laughs> I love it. I am so happy with that name. I, I, it's one of my favorite name things ever. I'm so glad I because it was called something else before. It was called Explorers the Ex- Explorers Club. Club, and I never liked that name. I don't know. I don't know what it was about that name that never resonated for me. I, I, it was driving me crazy every time I had to write it. I wanted to. I wanted to stop doing it. <laughs> I was like, right, Explorers Club, and it it just didn't work. There's something about it that was off, and and I, so I switched to the special projects last summer, and a bunch of Explorers Club people freaked out. They went nuts about it. They, oh, uh, you, that was my favorite part of every, you know. And um, I love it. I have zero regrets. But yeah, it I is. Don't, <laughs> I don't even know. Generic. But if you, if you search the web for just plain special projects, does, does it come up? I've, no, uh, I've, I've never even tried. See, but isn't that interesting that you've built a little business for yourself where that doesn't matter, right? Doesn't matter. I mean, that is not why I picked the name Daring Fireball, but it is, in fact, a very <laughs> easily, good. you know, there's only one Daring Fireball. It works. You know, Special Projects is your membership site. But it, I, I, you know what? This is hard to explain. <laughs> but <laughs> members. It, it is. It is complicated, weirdly. Members can sign up. You offer, this is where it's a little confusing. You offer multiple newsletters. So compare and contrast with, say, uh, Stratechery or our other mutual friend, Dan Fromer's uh, New Consumer, mm-hmm. where it's you, you pay, there's one membership tier and you get the main newsletter. Now you have three newsletters, you have a website, um, you make books. And making books is probably the best verb I can say. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to diminish you as a writer, but you also photograph them, you design them. Mm-hmm. You oversee the production of them. Now you're now you're making short movies. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but the basic 
dynamics of the arrangement are people can pay $10 a month or $100 a year um, to become members. That is the revenue that supports your career, and you get to spend your time writing, photographing, making videos, doing these things that that you're driven to do. Mm. That is that a fair description? Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's pretty good. The, the if I was going to summarize it, maybe make it a little simpler. I produce a bunch of uh, stuff like cultural output. One of the reasons why it's like I think so difficult to frame my membership program in terms of like what the clear value proposition is, is that I'm not selling, for example, like background information on, on business. I'm not, I'm not writing about finance. I'm not doing self-help stuff. I'm not going to give you tips to, to be a better person or whatever necessarily, but I'm just producing kind of all of this, this content off. Most of it is for free under this umbrella of kind of like culture, right? Cultural production or, or for lack of a better phrase. And so the membership program is basically like NPR for me. So if you're a fan of the stuff that I've been making, which is 90%, 95% of it is available for free, and you want to just support the production of that, that's kind of what the membership program is. And then um, I've just added lots of small value adds for members because what I found is that you know a membership program is one of the amazing bonuses of it is not just the revenue but you develop this this essentially gang of super fans that are amazing to to bounce ideas off of so i started doing because of the pandemic a bunch of um members only live streams of me just doing super boring work just like the most boring work you can imagine so i you know i i did 10 hours of live streaming building this website last last March. And, um, you know, there'd be like 20, 30, 50 people on the live stream at, you know, any moment, all just members. So always really intimate, but like what it allowed me to do that I didn't expect to happen was this kind of like running articulation of what it means to do this kind of work. So to just sort of like pull back, you know, open the doors to, hey, this is actually, you see the end product, which is like either this finished website or this finished book, but this is the 10, 20, 30 hours of what I'm actually doing to produce this thing. When you're doing a live stream, you can kind of like live narrate a little bit, you know, take questions. People ask, oh, why are you doing that now? You know, well, what's that tool you're using? What's that app you're using? And, you know, you just kind of share things. I've just found that to be really, really enriching and wonderful. And uh, this kind of weird bonus of the membership program that when I started it, I never thought would be part of it. These are things that I wouldn't want to do out into the, in, you know, just to the, the general, uh, in, to a general audience, because there is something like so intimate about showing how you produce say design a book or how you're you know building this website you know i'm in sublime text i'm writing i'm like you know i'm writing i'm editing live essentially on these live streams and to do that in front of say if i opened it up to everyone who's following me you know say it'd be a thousand people or whatever like that's a very different performative experience than in front of 30 super fans that you know are going to support you and are going to i don't know just be positive in general like there's no posturing so that like it's it's just been incredible to have this like tool, basically a creative tool, um, to 
to motivate me to be better and be more self-aware of why I use the software I use and like why I make the decisions around the creative projects that I do. And that's been, that's been fantastic. That's been a really, really wonderful benefit. You're now starting year three. Yeah. We're in year year three of the membership, right? Effectively. I I think you started in February, 2019, but you you know, February is early enough in a year where we could, you could just say it. 2019 was the first year. Yep. 2020 was the second year, and now 2021. Yeah. And you've written copiously about your experiences. And to me, Dan, Dan Fromer has done the same thing and talking at a at a sort of meta level about, you know, what's worked, what hasn't worked and and building this. And it it's like your timing was uh, serendipitous right because you're 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 ahead way at you're like two years ahead of the Substack phenomenon mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know what i mean so you can you can you can you're not like a johnny come lately to the i'm gonna run my independent publishing creative output work as a membership system basically memberships are having a moment right now they right? are well yeah because i think a little bit of of the what we've done is we've normalized over the last decade really in the last five years we've normalized this idea of like paying for stuff is a good thing to do (laughs) if you you know it's like if you if you have things institutions that you love institutions that you want to see continue in the world then it turns out that paying for them is 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 positive that's a positive signal and and you know makes things sustainable and so i think that's kind of tipped over into you know the independent creative world as well and the tools have just gotten better. But you've built a lot of your system yourself, or at least you're taking some pre-built pieces like a campaign monitor you use for sending yep. out the actual newsletters and snapping that into a system with, you know, uh, what do you, Stripe for payments or no, Memberful, right? But Memberful is sort of a thing that's built on Stripe. Yep. It, it <laughs> I don't think it's complicated, but you've explained it in great detail. But it is it is interesting, though, to me, like all of these things didn't really exist 15 years ago, right? There was no Stripe of 15 years ago. I mean, there was, right. pay, you know, PayPal was probably the Stripe of 15, 20 years ago. And you just couldn't use PayPal quite as snapped together seamlessly the way that you can use Stripe today. Right. Well, I mean, I think Stripe's masterstroke and obviously Patrick and, and John knew this when they built it is the API, you know, it's just, they, they, it was never this, this consumer facing thing as a consumer, you never went to stripe.com. You still, for the most part, I don't think go to stripe.com. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, this was the Twitter ecosystem in the beginning as well, where it was like, Oh, Hey, look, yeah, there's a Twitter client, but there, here's this API and you can build amazing software on top of this incredible stream of, you know, sort of consciousness that's coming out of you know everyone on on the on the 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 timeline and uh look at the vibrant ecosystem that can be built from that now twitter obviously pulled back from that that mode of thinking but i think stripe is just such a wonderful example of building a perfect bit of infrastructure and uh, you know creating the right endpoints that anyone can plug into however they want to and you do see things like Shopify. So Shopify doesn't use Stripe. You know, they built Shopify payments. And I think in the case of uh, a company as large as Shopify, which is fascinating, actually, Shopify is like one of my most, absolutely most, most fascinating companies, I think, out there today. Um, the fact that they're 
they're basically the only real Amazon competitor at this point, I think is, is incredible. Um, and the software is amazing. I don't know if you've used Shopify or if you've built on anything, anything on Shopify, but it's pretty great. I mean, it's not perfect, but it is, you know, if you compare AWS and Shopify, it's like one is very user-friendly, but, um, but for the most part, you know, like Memberful uses Stripe, Patreon probably uses Stripe as the back end. A lot of these, you know, Ghost uses Stripe as the back end. And what's interesting about Stripe, if it's used as the membership back end for payments, is that it's portable. You can like you can essentially move that the, all those Stripe tokens to whatever next platform you want to use. So you're not, if, if essentially you're not locked in. I'm not locked into Memberful. I can move to a different platform right. if I wanted to, which is really powerful. Yeah, and that's certainly one of the more compelling things about Substack's message too is that you know they let the the creators, the authors who were writing on Substack know that if you ever want to leave, you can you get to take your mailing list with you. Yeah, I wonder how long that's going to last though. I don't know either because the valuations are so you know the the numbers they're talking about are so crazy and it's like I think it's a good business in terms of like a traditional business and you know <laughs> Like like the type of thing you and I run, where it's yeah. like if your monthly income is higher than your monthly expenses, then that's pretty good, you know. <laughs> As opposed <Yeah. laughs> to, uh, you know, raising a bunch of venture capital and at just having this fountain of money and just throwing it at it until all of a sudden it goes away, you know. I think it's going to be interesting. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch what what Substack does. I mean. Sixty-five million dollars is a lot of dollars, right. uh, you know, and I, I think um, it's a lot of ten-dollar monthly newsletters. <laughs> it's so many, but so for for a platform that allows the creators to move whenever they want, and the bigger you get, the more motivated you know they take. I think their split is like ninety ten, and I don't know if that includes the Stripe payment. I, so it might be more like. You know, eighty-seven, thirteen. If you include yeah. Stripe, um, you know, once you get to a, you know, into that thousand true, true believe. What's the Kevin Kelly's term? The thousand true thousand fans. True fans. Yep. You know, but that's that is the basic model, and that has been the dream. You know, this uh, Kevin Kelly was the founding editor of Wired magazine. You know, long, long-standing career, but he had this theory that you know. A, on the the internet allows an artist to make a good living with a thousand true fans who are mm-hmm. maybe paying ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars a year, or uh, maybe just buy their album when it comes out. I, I don't know. I guess people don't really buy albums anymore, but you know, you, you get the feeling that a thousand fans can support an artist very well, and in a way that never was possible pre-internet. There was just no way. You you couldn't do what you do. I couldn't do what I do, right? I mean, no. what what would the pre-internet equivalent of what you're doing be? I mean, there's... It would be, could, it would probably be running like an indie press, you know, and right. really cobbling together. It, it's interesting, though, because like in other countries, I think like Americans have this impoverished view of like what's possible as an independent artist, because there's like... There's just so few subsidies for artists in America right. relative yeah. to other countries. Like if you, if you talk to like a Canadian poet, you know, and, and you're like, oh, it must be so tough being a poet and can't, you know, and they're like, what are you talking about, man? We've got all these like poet, you know, uh, funds and, and grants and stuff up here in Canada. You know, if you put together your first chapbook or whatever, you get 
fifty thousand dollars. Like there's there's just wild amounts of opportunity for artists in. I feel like in countries like like Canada and uh, in Europe, all over Europe, just the 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 network of um, sort of artist residencies and stuff. And I think that's kind of always been the case. I don't think this is a relatively new thing. And so, um, yeah, I think probably the equivalent 20 or 30 years ago would be, you know, being like a Canadian, you know, like in Vancouver running a small independent, you know, publishing company and, and, and being really excited selling like 300 or 400 books a year. You know? Right. <laughs> But it 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 would be hard to get word out, right? And It'd it's be like so tough. I, I I'm I'm so American, and my view is so warped by having grown up in the decades I did. Uh, not to get zealotrous about it, but it, it's clear to me now in middle age and and having a better sense of the last the decades of my adult life that America took a profoundly capitalist turn in the 70s and 80s and and has shaped things like that like i don't think it's weird that canada has you know government sponsored fellowships and and uh things like that for poetry and and there are ways to to get similar things from universities here in the United States. But it does seem sound weird to American ears that the government might just provide stipends to artists to have a, not just like a, a substance level, but to actually, you know, have a nice life. Yeah. And that it's good, you know, and, and that it's just accepted across society that this is actually good for the country to be producing this. I just saw a quote from, JFK talking about the arts and um, it, it was the thing that made me realize it's just one of those things, you know, like when, when, and uh, knowing that you were going to be on the show, I just started catch, you know, certain Craig Motti type things just, <laughs> oh no, you know, no, but, the, <laughs> but it, it, it's what gave me this thought about like the turn that Reaganism had away from that, uh, the Kennedy idea, you know, the Kennedy Center for the Arts is still a big thing, but it was this quote went from when he was president talking about how he, he, he looks forward to a day in America where we do just as much to support artists society wise as we do scientists and teachers and, and stuff like that. And that it's, it's good for the fabric of society to do that. Yeah. And that, that just isn't a message we heard in the eighties or the nineties. And it's not even a partisan thing. It's just, you know, because, you know, we had Reagan and then we had Clinton. So it's not like, oh, just the Republicans or Democrats. But it, it just wasn't the direction that things went. Yeah. Well, which is weird because America does have an amazing network of artist residencies. Just they're not, they're all privately funded, a lot of them. You know, um, right. probably, you know, arguably one of the best. You know, one of the oldest and best writing residencies in the world is is up in uh, up in New Hampshire called McDowell, and um, I went there nine years ago, and it was life changing. It really was. It was truly this life changing experience of um, that. I think uh, what's difficult about people being convinced that that art is is important in the world is I think folks have this this false 
image of the artist as this, you know, hippie smoking Mary Jane and just like faffing around, right? That's sort of this like ridiculous image that I think a lot of people carry around of artists. But if you actually engage with serious, committed artists, it's like, you know, I've been, I've done projects at CERN and I've been to like residencies like this thing at McDowell. And I would put both of, both of those activities. So the physics research at CERN and the artistic rigor and work and commitment at an institution like McDowell as operating at a very similar level. And it's like, it's very, it's one of those things that like, it doesn't make any sense to you until you go and you live in there. I've spent three weeks at CERN, I've spent a month at McDowell. And you go and you live with these people and you kind of participate in their universe and you just kind of breathe it in. And you realize that that rigor of curiosity and investigation is, 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 there's a parody there between scientific exploration and artistic exploration, like absolutely undeniably. And it's really exciting, but it's also hard to convince people of that sometimes, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you just threw some paint on a, on a, you know, on a, on a canvas and, you know, and then rubbed your naked body over it or something like that. What are you doing? But, uh, but often there's, there's a tremendous amount of incredible, incredible, again, rigor of, of exploration happening behind so much art, you know, and, and, in literature, it's maybe a little easier to see with like folks like James Baldwin, you know, and how his, his work and his essays are resonating, you know, they've had this resurgence in the last decade because of what's been happening in the world. And, um, you know, that's, that's so powerful, you know, and his, that work was empowered by a lot of, a lot of grants and, and residency work, and a lot of it happened in Europe. So, I, I think it's really a shame that that the arts sort of get thrown under the bus so quickly when it comes to budgets and and whatnot. Yeah, it is one of these things where I think if you did the math on it, that the returns of money invested in the arts, in terms of I don't know GDP and some, so if you could really trace it all, it, you'd you'd see a seriously positive return, like a, a good multiple on those investments, you know. And um, and yet it's it's diff- it's one of these difficult, conceptually difficult things for people to grasp, and certainly people in government, it seems they uh, you know they're like oh, we don't need the painting program, we don't need the music program. Yeah, is, if, you, uh, yeah if you can't painful. if you can't prove it in a spreadsheet yeah. it's it's the it has no value if it, it is the mindset you know to, well, this is, to, which is such a problem these days because the world is is getting to this level of complexity where these like one-to-one direct relationships between action and output are becoming so abstract that um you need to you need to develop this this rigor of 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 uh investigation you know that i think a, a lot of people don't have where it's like oh you know why is this happening in the world right now and instead of just you know this is why conspiracy theories are so seductive is because they reduce the complexity of the fact that the world is this crazy spider web of things and if you pluck a string over here it's going to resonate in weird ways on the other side of the world and and to follow those those threads out requires commitment and it requires an intellectual curiosity that you know is often lost on youtube or you know on in in a, a twitter stream or something like that so it's it's anyway it's a weird moment but to bring it back to like these membership programs that we have it is in- incredibly empowering right now to I think if you are a self-motivated creative person, 
like all the tools are there. All the tools are there and the the people, the fans, the the folks who want to support your work, they know how to do it. Like we've all kind of we figured it out and that's that's exciting. I mean, what do you think was the start of this really? This kind of this current uh push would you say like Kickstarter a decade ago was really the thing that kind of that kind of like activated this world? Yeah, I think so, maybe. It's it's hard to say. Kickstarter was certainly super influential because it certainly, um, I, and I, I've always thought, and again, there's all sorts of Kickstarters that I've supported over the years. And some of them are just purely digital to buy, you know, somebody's ebook or, or something like that. But for the most part, most of the Kickstarters I've had an interest in were to produce physical items, you know, like, but one of my favorites is the studio neat guys who make all sorts of great products. I think maybe their first was the Glyph. It was like a, you know, mm. one of the first uh uh tripod iPhone. mounts yeah. for the for the iPhone. But just to make things, right? And to get, you know, but to actually make a physical item, you need capital, right? Like the like the advantage to doing something purely digital like my website Daring Fireball is I could bootstrap it with almost no money at all. I mean, it was ridiculous. When I got started the first, I think at least two years of Daring Fireball, I was on like a $12 a month shared hosting account. And it, you know, it, it was great. It was probably more than I needed. I probably could have like downgraded to the $8 one. Um, that That's phenomenal. But, and, and for me personally, it was always, uh, I, I, I sympathize with you when you, when you launched your project and you said like you dreaded it and you didn't want to ask, I mean, cause I did oh. memberships back in the day. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Cause right. I, I remember I was, a, I am pretty sure I was a member because I wanted that full RSS feed. Right. <laughs> that was right. the perk, right? Right. I've told this story numerous times, but I'll tell, I'll try to tell it again. But the basic idea was I, 2004, Four was when I started selling T-shirts and memberships, and 2006 is when I quit my job at Joyent and went full time, thinking I needed to go full time to have the, you know, the the the, chi- the chicken and the egg problem was that you need to go full time first to produce the work, and then the audience will grow. And that if I mm. waited, if I kept waiting forever with Daring Fireball as a side project. I wasn't going to get there. What am I waiting for? Mm. And the fear of failure was <laughs> mortifying, absolutely uh, enough to completely seize me up. But on the other hand, I, I, I don't know who told me. I, I you know, I, but somebody effectively said, "What is the worst that could possibly happen?" It's probably my wife. But uh, that it, it, if it doesn't work out financially. You lose nothing, right? Like yeah. you know, and and if anything, if I just spend you know a year and a bunch of savings doing even more writing than ever before and become better known, if I do need to did need to get a job somewhere else, I'd be better known than I was before, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, my membership system, my idea was. So anybody who bought a T-shirt got a membership, and if you didn't want a T-shirt, you could just pay nineteen dollars a year and become a member. Mm. And the exclusive perk, because I did have the idea even back then, that you, there had to be something, right? There's got to be, even if you think, and most of the people say, "I just love Daring Fireball. I would love to just support you." 
I just want to give you the thing. What pushes them over the edge, you always mentioned the, the NPR tote bags. Nobody really mm-hmm. gives a shit about the tote bags or mm. the umbrellas, you know? Mm. Um, but it, it pushes people over the edge. They're like, well, I might as well get it now. I'll get the tote bag. I've been meaning to exactly. give money to NBR. You know, the umbrella looks nice. I'll get the umbrella. <laughs> I don't really need a tote bag. Uh, our full content RSS feeds were, <laughs> this sounds very old. <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess it still is an issue. It seems like most of the RSS feeds I read now, though, are all from independent blogs, right? Just people. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, they have the full content because they're, they're not trying to hoard it behind, you know, some kind of uh, publications gateway. But it was a huge thing because everybody in the golden era, original golden era of RSS, the bigger publications, I, I'll just I'll throw Ars Technica under the bus. Ars Technica had just had excerpts in their articles, and so right. you'd get the headline, you'd know there was, you'd know who wrote it, you'd get like the summary, and then if you wanted to read the full article, you had to double click or whatever the action was in your feed reader of choice to go to the Ars Technica website because. The website is where they had the ads, and the ads are how they made the money. So it wasn't like you know they were ripping anybody off, and it was clear why they were doing it. The ads were only generating money on their website, so they couldn't. They felt like they couldn't give away the articles in the RSS. So I, I guess I forget if I only had excerpts. I forget what I had before, but I wanted to. I knew people wanted to read full articles in. On, from Daring Fireball in the RSS reader. And I wanted to make people happy. But I was already trying, you know, the nascent days of my sponsorship system uh, were there too. And that's so I had my ads on the website. And so I thought, well, I'll do this thing and you pay $19 and then you'll get your own little private URL and you can read the full content. And it did pretty well. I mean, it absolutely, the membership thing absolutely helped me in that first year when I went full-time in 2006. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have made it without it. Mm-hmm. My analogy was, it still is, is like early 2006, I went full-time, made the big announcement, asked people for their support. And we had, I forget how many, tens of thousand dollars in savings that we had sort of you know, okay, this is what we can live off while we try to get this thing into black. And it was like an airplane slowly approaching the ground, but then starting to pull up, you know, like by summer, it was like the monthly revenue was getting closer. It's like, but it's, it's going to, this is going to come really close (laughs) to eating through all the savings until the point later in the year. But by the end of the year, it was break even month to month, which was pretty amazing. And was was there any fear of, I guess, like reputational hits that you could take by doing this? I guess so, because, you know, I mean, my big fear would be that if it hadn't worked and I had to take a full-time job somewhere, you know, that either A, the job would, by some aspect of it, require me to stop writing during fireball right like mm. if i become a full-time staff writer at macworld or something like that or in theory there's some roll of the dice over the last 20 years where i wound up, i wind up working at apple right i mean that's you know it, it could have happened at some point and the earlier years were probably more likely 
Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but most people who work at Apple don't don't write a personal blog where and then where they espouse strong opinions about Apple and its <laughs> products and competitors and etc. Would I have had to shudder during Fireball? I doubt it. But I mean, you know, some kind of announcement like, "Hey, I've taken a job at Apple." And yeah, we're moving to Cupertino, and you know, blah blah blah. Would have would have disappointed me greatly, to say yeah. the least. Well, well, an ego hit, right? I mean, that's kind yeah. of what's that's the biggest thing that's at stake in a lot of these cases. Well, and the other thing to me is that I just have I've I've never had a I've never been successful working for somebody else. I forget the longest I've ever yeah. had a job, <laughs> but it's not much more than two years, and that's yeah. at anything, and it's because. I, uh, I, I'm a friendly fellow and I think I get, you know, it's not like I'm <laughs> irascible and I'm not listening. It's just though, eventually, uh, this is what I need to be doing and I'm going to spend my time on, you know, time I should be spending on work. I would be spending writing stuff for Daring Fireball because I just feel compelled to do it. And so I, right. what I desperately needed to do is figure out a way to make that work financially. Right. Well, but that I, was always my. I, I, I'm right there with you. My, you know, my whole thing was always like, when I run out of independent stuff that I absolutely need to do, then I'll I'll go think about getting a job. That was that was, and and it's not like I had a a, a trust fund. I you know I I came from this little airplane engine factory town where uh, I'm one of like ten people who made it out of the, out of that town uh, from my high school class, and. Um, it was more just, you know, living in Japan is such a huge life hack. I think that that people have this misconstrued sense of the cost of living in Japan. Actually, living in Tokyo in my 20s was the only way I was able to do all the work I did and make as little money as I did. I was, you know, in my for most of my 20s I was making about $20,000 a year max, like cobbling that together through uh certain projects and whatever. And and my my whole thing was like as soon as I ran out of, I need to make this, I need to make this, I need to make this, then I'll go find a job somewhere else. But that impulse to to work on these other projects was so overwhelming and all-consuming that, there, you know, there's that Steve Jobs quote of like, you know, do you wake up in the morning and like, is, you know, are, are you doing the thing you want to do that day? You know, every day you ask, is this what I want to be doing? Is this what I want? And I just, every day I woke up and I had a thing that I, I must do. Um, and that was, you know, I, I tried to basically protect the time around that by minimizing my cost of living. You know, for most of my 20s, my, my yearly, this is going to sound insane, but my yearly like base cost of living was about $10,000. <laughs> that was that was living in Tokyo, right? Like That's if crazy. I had, I didn't know if, that the economics worked like that in Tokyo. That you if I had ten thousand, if I had ten thousand dollars coming in for the year, I would not. I I could have a roof over my head, and I could be eating decently well, and I would could be you know working on all the projects that I wanted to work on because like you know like you said a lot of web stuff. There's no there's no cost to it. You know the servers were were relatively cheap. Um, I did have a Rackspace server at one point, which was my biggest cost by far in my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and like 50, uh, 50 bucks a month. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was, you know, that was, I needed that to do certain, certain programming things and have tasks processing data in the background and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that was, that was my big expense. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you could do this online work 
in this kind of miraculous way where if you had a computer and a fast internet connection and in Japan, we have, I've had fiber in Japan for the last 18 years, um, you know, and it's like 30 bucks a month. It's like, it's pretty, that was always just there. Um, you know, you can kind of build as an, as an individual creator, I'd say the last 20 years have probably been one of the most miraculous, incredible moments in history in terms of um, what one person can do and the, and the amount of um, exposure they can get for their work. It's just, it's, it's astounding to think back on it. Um, I, well, I, I've, I was thinking about that rereading your essays on, on the system you've built for running special projects and how it, it is, it's, it, it's a, a longer list of components than, okay, get a shared hosting uh, account and, and install movable type or WordPress or remember gray matter, you know, find, oh, yeah. find a blogging package, un- unzip it, <laughs> type something into a config file. And then you just start banging away on CSS and HTML templates, and you're, that's it. There's more components, but it's also very clearly something. Uh, you know, you, I, you and I are similar in the way that we're technically adept enough that we can do a lot of this on our own. You know, like I'm, I'm much more of a writer than anything else. But I have a computer science degree, and that was mm-hmm. that was a huge, huge boon. And you know, and there's a reason why. A lot of the people whose site, you know, like Kotki, who's still going strong, but also, you know, was a web developer. Uh, yeah. Heather Armstrong at uh, Deuce.com was a web developer and could build her own website. You know, being able to build your own website was not necessarily required, but you either needed to do it yourself or have somebody you could who could do it for you. Right. You, you couldn't just snap the pieces together. Right. Well, the way I'm doing it is definitely not the recommended way. <laughs> you know, it's like my, my way. I would not, you know, I think I say that in most of my, my write ups. I'm like, look, I'm going to show do. you how I do, I'll show you how I do it and do not do this. Like, this is the anti pattern. Uh, unless, I mean, I also have a computer science degree. Uh, and, um, you know, unless you really, really like this stuff. Uh, and for me, you know, like I, like I wrote about in Wired the other day, you know, there is something, really healing and palliative about this kind of work for me that has a deep connection to my childhood. And, you know, it's like kind of this safe space server work. And so like, I am not turned off by it, but you could basically, I think, fire up like a ghost instance, you know, a shared, you know, like a hosted ghost instance, and you basically have everything you need. It does the memberships, it does the newsletters, it does the blog, you have control over the design if you want, but you don't have to uh, mess with it. And you have complete ownership of the whole stack. Um, and requires a, a relatively little technical um, uh, sort of input. And uh, so I think, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty great. But uh, yeah, definitely the my, my tech stack is not not recommended. You know, it's like, it just, you, you, it's, you, you protest too much. We're from well. We're from this era, you know. I feel like this is a great example of just carrying forward your baggage, you know, throughout your entire life. Like we carry all this psychic baggage with us, and all this, you know, the physical baggage of like injuries and stuff. And like one of the things that definitely I think I'm carrying forward is like this need, this technical obsession baggage, where I'm like, oh, I, if it's not, if it doesn't have 400 moving parts, and I have to compile something in the in the terminal, then it's not really doing the work. There is something I find meditative about all that crap. So <laughs> that's how I justify it. All right. Let me take a break here and thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends at Flatfile, one of the worst ways 
that you can spend your time is manually formatting spreadsheets. Boo. Terrible. Thankfully, our friends at Flatfile have created Portal. That's their elegant import button. So your customers can confidently import their data the first time. Onboarding customer data with Flatfile Portal frees you, your engineers, your team, and your customers from having to manually format and fuss with spreadsheets for hours and no need to maintain your own custom data importer. That's what Flatfile does. They're the experts on parsing spreadsheets to get organized structured data out of them. Let them do it for you. Uh, Portal integrates with virtually any application, and in minutes, you can transform your customer data onboarding from emailing a bunch of Excel files back and forth, keeping track of versions on your own with the subject in the email, to importing even the messiest customer data just in minutes. Are you ready to solve your data chaos? Visit flatfile.io. I'll repeat that URL for you, flatfile.io. So you mentioned the piece you just wrote, uh, I think, a couple days ago in Wired? Yeah, it just came out yesterday. Yeah. Well, I started it three years ago, but it came out yesterday. <laughs> this is so amazing that it came out right before you were on the show, because this is how I think about it, too. And I've I've been writing less code uh, than I did when I was younger. And it's, it's like, I don't want to say my skills have been atrophying, but my... My priorities to bubble up something on my weird moon man to-do system, <laughs> to bubble it up to, okay, here's the thing I'm actually going to spend the next, th- this afternoon on, it to be a programming project as opposed to writing something or reading something. or it, it, it's, it, it's gotten lower, and I've made an effort... Mm. Uh, in recent months to sort of do a little more of that. There's nothing, I, I don't really have a lot that I could, that's visible. And if there's anything I need to do going forward the rest of this year differently, it's to actually write about more of them, right? Daring Fireball used to have a lot mm-hmm. more posts. I, I, every once in a while, I get stuck reading an old, old post on Daring Fireball, and I'm like, hey, this was pretty good back then. But just explaining how, how I made a little thing that does a thing. Yeah. And I've started making more little things, but I haven't taken the time to actually write them up. But uh, the 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 mental aspect of it that you mentioned is so true for me. I I find it to be therapeutic, mm-hmm. and and depending on my mood, it, it almost necessary. And it's interesting. I can't. I should be able to, right? Because this is what I do. I talk about this stuff and I write about this stuff and I consider myself both a writer and a programmer. So I should be able to express myself more clearly about how I see the difference between writing like a like a, a new iPhone review, like a multi-thousand word iPhone review and writing some kind of computer program to run, you know, like on my server or something like that. There are similar parts to it, but there's something fundamentally more satisfying about programming. It's like I feel more compelled to do prose writing, but it's the programming that is, hey, this is this is neat. And there's a thing you mentioned in it that once you get a piece of code running, it 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 doesn't just feel like you made something. It feels like you've made something that has a bit of life to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
How do you decide? So, for example, with this article, how do you decide that this is going to go on? You're going to submit this to Wired and not host it at craigmod.com? Well, um, that's a good question. I mean, it's such a weird distinction to make. I mean, but part of it, part of it is is a is a personal recognition that. For, so, okay, let's back up. Let's back up. So part of it is I just want to work with editors because I want to get better at writing. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's, that's I would say 90, that's 70% of it. So it's just, I, I, I want to get better at writing and just writing on my own and writing for my newsletters or blogs or whatever. Um, I can, you know, that's that activates a certain muscle of just doing the work. But if you go to the gym, you can go to the gym, you know, uh, five times a week for 10 years and you could be doing you could just have stupid habits that you're stuck doing. And so I find like working with an editor is kind of like hiring a personal trainer or whatever. And working with a great editor is just such a joy. And I know that working with the right editor will elevate um, the quality of a piece uh, far higher than I could get it on my own. And so, you know, I was working on a novel for years and part of that process was, um, applying for fellowships and applying for workshops. I was at, I did the Iowa Writers Workshop Program. The, they have like a, a two month intensive summer edition of the, of the, the fiction, the writer's workshop there. And, uh, you know, going out there and doing that, that was, these were all things to basically force myself to work with people who have spent a lot of time thinking about this these kinds of, of, of writing. In that case, the writing fiction. And in the case of working with, uh, with editors at Wired or The Atlantic, you know, doing this sort of nonfiction, this, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 word or 800 to 1,500 word nonfiction stuff for a publication like Wired or, or The Atlantic. So a big part of it is just if I write something that I'm, I'm kind of excited about that I feel like, you know, hits on like a, a a quote unquote sort of truth that I haven't seen articulated clearly uh, recently. You know, a lot of these things are kind of like have been done before, written about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But if something recent hasn't come up that's kind of hit on the same notes. Um, and then I feel like, okay, yeah, there's something interesting going on here that I feel is like is very true for me. And I would like this idea to have the the ability to impact or to, to reach as many people as possible, Wired just has a much bigger readership than anything I'm ever going to cobble together. So that's that's the other 30%. So it's 70% working with a great editor to make me better um, and to, to learn how to think about writing better stories and to elevate the story itself. And then the 30% is just is just is the platform um and then somewhere in there there's the the payment component which is uh less important now because i have the membership program but is nice like wired actually pays pretty well like i got paid decently for that piece um and so that's that's you know all together that's kind of that's how i end up deciding uh to, to put things in, in certain publications. And so when I, like I said, I wrote this, I started writing this three years ago and I wrote it for one of my newsletters, the Roden newsletter. Um, and a lot of times at the end of that Roden newsletter, I'll have like a big essay or I'll put, I, I kind of, I don't go into it thinking I'm going to write an essay. I have this, I, this topic I want to kind of play with and it turns into an essay often. And I was thinking about server work 
um, working on. I'd done all this server stuff. I moved off of one of my one of those old Rackspace servers, and I found the process of that move to be so healing and and really important to me at that moment. And uh, and I started writing about that, and I, I got that Rodin essay done. And I thought, you know, there's something more here. I don't want to just put this in the newsletter and then have that be done. I want to think about a, a different place for this, and I'd like to work with an editor on this. And so that was kind of why I held it back. Um, but but sometimes I'll put stuff in the in the newsletter, and it just takes off like crazy. Like the like the my fast software mm. is the best software essay was originally in a newsletter, and then that had such an immediate visceral reach from just the newsletter. I gave it its own. I ripped it out of the newsletter. I cleaned it up a bit, gave it its own URL on my on my my homepage under the essays header, and um, that thing had crazy reach. So sometimes, like, you can have massive reach if you're an independent writer, but I find it so difficult to tell what is going to have what's going to sort of strike that chord. And uh, and so I find a good way to to kind of if you have a piece that you really want to get out in the world. Uh, to a bigger audience than going with the Atlantic or Wired, if you can, uh, if you can get it in there, is, is a way to to kind of hack that. Ben Thompson and I have talked about the fact that neither neither of us has an editor, and yeah, uh, it's not that I'm opposed, but I'm certainly not going to hire one for Daring Firewall, right? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know why I even laugh at that. I could, you know, uh, it it is an interesting skill. I think, and I'm not even saying I'm not trying to say like my writing could not be improved through editing, but like for a couple of years, I was writing back page columns for Macworld a couple of times a year, um, which was an interesting experience. And and at the, when I first started doing it, the money was very meaningful to me, and it's a sim- similar thing. Macworld paid very well for a back page column. And and it was important. Um, it was fascinating because my dad was incredibly impressed. It's like I think he finally understood what I do because <laughs> he could right, right, he could go right. and buy a copy of MacWorld and open it up to the back page, and there's my picture and my my byline, you know, in print. Um, but it, my time writing the MacWorld columns, I I don't recall ever once having one really seriously improved through editing not and i i i'm sure that there are people who worked at macworld who are listening to this <laughs> i i don't mean to slag on their editors at all it just i i you know i i've always been a pretty careful self-editing writer it's yeah uh, and a few times when I, my my columns were changed, it was for the worse because they were edited slightly for space, and right, I right. felt like I already had no needless words to omit, you know, and that the point was lost. Right. I well, I you know, it is it is. I think finding great editors is critical, you know, and I think that's that's why when I when I um, say I'm pitching to Wired or whatever, I'm really pitching to specific people. And I'm only, yeah. I only want to work with this person yeah. or that person, you know, and that's, that's because I know that they're going to, they're going to elevate it. But even with my book last year, um, you know, Kisa by Kisa, um, 
I worked with, I, I actually had, I had two, two editors really. Um, one was sort of a technical copy focused editor that definitely made it better. There were just all these inconsistencies and stuff. And then I had another editor who was, was, was sort of on a bigger picture level. And these are super talented people and uh, super accomplished people. And they absolutely made that manuscript better, you know, like, and a lot, a lot of it for me is just having the conversations, you know, there's this like old adage of like, how do you, how do you help a physicist do, you know, work at the blackboard? It's like, buy him a dog, (laughs) you know, just give him someone to talk to. That's all, that's all you need. A lot of times is just someone to articulate, like, what did you do today? What are you doing in this paragraph? Um, Nausgaard, uh, the guy who wrote the, my struggles, uh, mega, you know, auto, auto novel, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's, no, I don't think so. Yeah, he's, I, I think he's Norwegian. He wrote like, like, I think like 90% of all Norwegian people have read his novels. Um, but he wrote this two, 3000 page kind of pseudo autobiographical fiction thing. Um, and part of that process for him writing was that at the end of every day, every day he would write and then he would call his editor and he would read to the editor everything he wrote that day. Uh, just as a way of like, am I crazy? Is this shit? You know, it's like, um, is it, does this make sense? You know, it just, I think like that sounding board for certain writers can be so powerful. And, uh, and so that's for, for me, that's definitely, um, kind of like what, where I'm reaching for when I'm, when I'm reaching to work with an editor. That said, I have had essays turn, they turn very into very different things because I was young and I, and I was nervous and I was publishing with a, a big name brand publication and I was afraid to push back and I've had things go out that I'm, I'm actually somewhat embarrassed by because the, the message was changed so dramatically from what I originally intended to write to what ended up getting published that, um, I did, I, I, I definitely, I think it made me cautious about editors and it's made me more aware of what you should fight for when you're working with someone and not to be afraid to fight for that because, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that you have this, this message that's been kind of perverted by the editorial process um, because the publication can sometimes have an image for where they want the piece to go uh, for whatever reason. And uh, you know, that may, if that's not aligned with what you want, then definitely pull out, you know, if uh, talking to young writers out there who may end up working with editors, like, you know, own make sure you know where you want that thing to go and and fight for it fight for fight for that that core on a sentence by sentence level you might have to give up some things but like the, if the core message is being perverted definitely pull back and you know in some cases maybe even just pull the piece if it's not going to go where you want it to go my problem my other problem with the the macworld back page column was that i'm fundamentally too selfish about daring fireball and mm. the pieces I see, and this is where I, I, I think I see the difference. Like this, the, your, your column here that you just published in Wired has a different feel to it than your, your special projects writing, right? Your special projects writing is more intimate and you've got a voice that is um, sort of knowing because you know you're writing for this audience of people who already know who you are. 
as opposed to mm. the, the giant megaphone of Wired, where you're writing for an audience where I'll bet most of the people who've already read it had never heard of you before or don't recall hearing, a, you know. Right, right. Um, my problem with the Macworld back page is that they were just, they were the same things that I write for Daring Fireball, except w- right, when I wrote for right. the back page, they had to be exactly 700 words or whatever, nine, I think it was like 900 words. And if I had a 600 word idea, well, I had to figure out a way to pad it. And if I had a 1200 word idea, I had to figure out a way to cut it. And I was very frustrated by that. And, but I also all, you know, it, it, it I love, still like Macworld, but at the time, Macworld, the Macworld back page was, that was the shiznit, right? That's where, that's oh, yeah. where David Pogue uh, used to write. That's where Stephen Levy used to write in the eighties. And there I was, you know, this is what I wanted to do when I started writing about this stuff is be on the back page of Macworld. And then as soon as I got there, I, I wanted to not be there anymore. <laughs> well, when, when were you, when were you doing the Macworld stuff? Eh, when was probably that? like 2006 to 2008, I want to say. Do you, do, do you feel like that had a, a, like a marked effect on your profile? Like, do you think that that brought yeah, in a bunch of Daring Fireball? Maybe. Yeah. It certainly didn't yeah. hurt. You know, I think I, I think I did just the right amount of it. I don't want to complain too much. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. The, the fundamental tension I felt was that when I did a back page column that I didn't feel came out right and, and yeah. that, that hard length limit is not a good skill that I have. And, and by, by exercising my writing muscles, writing at Daring Fireball, I wasn't building that muscle, right? Like writing to a set back page column length, you know, uh, I, sure. those muscles uh, have atrophied for me. Um, so if I had, I turned in a bad column, I felt terribly guilty about it. Just terrible because it's like, this is, I just knew that this wasn't the best work that I could do. And here I, here I am so lucky that I'm able to write at on this page that I've always wanted to be on. Uh, but then on the other hand, when I'd write a really good one, I would feel terrible that it was at Macworld and not at Daring Fireball. <laughs> right, 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 right. Because you're not, yeah, you're not, you're not building the foundation of your, your castle or whatever. Right. You know, you're giving, you're giving that brick to someone else. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's, I think that's a very universal feeling for a lot of people who do independent work and then, uh, you know, go off to, to, either work in a company or work at a publication. And that's what, you know, part of what's been interesting about the Substack thing is like basically people building up inside of a big, a big publication, the cachet and the name value, their brand inside of a pub, and then taking that brand value and monetizing it, you know, basically going in reverse. And uh, I think that's really fascinating. You know, I think in some ways it's really smart. Um, and in other ways, I think a lot of people will find out that being, you know, doing independent work is exhausting right. in a way that, you know, having having the the institution there is actually quite helpful sometimes. But. Right. No, no, no question about it. I wonder how long it'll last for some people. You know. Yeah. Um, I know. Uh, so to, uh, you know, Andrew Sullivan has has a big big high name Substack now. And he he came from the world of magazine editing, but then had his personal blog for a number of years during the Bush administration. And, you know, I think he's been pretty clear that he effectively burned out on it, 
Um, yeah. And I just wonder, you know, what's the difference going to be this time? And, and he's enormously pro- prolific. I mean, you know, his weekly newsletter, it's like, I can't believe that every week on the week he, he can write that much. Right. Well, there's a couple of newsletter writers that I, I just kind of want to, I want to like pull them aside and go, you don't have to write this much. Right. <laughs> like, it's just, it's too much. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, I don't know about you, but my newsletter folder in my inbox, it's like increasingly difficult to go in there because I'm like, okay, all right, we've got another 5,000 word, you know, piece yeah. <laughs> from it's, it's so, um, it's so, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by the, by the prolific nature of some of these, some of these writers. And like, I think it really does bring up sustainability issues, like psychic sustainability issues. Cause it's like, you can burn out for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, if you build up a certain momentum and you feel like you, your readers have an expectation, I think that's, that's where the burnout happens is like, you're writing these 5,000 word giant newsletters a couple times a week. And, uh, you know, you want to take a break, but you're worried everyone's going to freak out. But the reality is, is that no one's going to freak out and everyone's going to be like, hey, take a break. That's fine. Um, but we can kind of back ourselves into these weird psychic corners. And, you know, and that's where you uh, that's where you get into trouble, I think. So. All right. Let me take another break here and thank our next friends, our good friends at Squarespace. Squarespace is a longtime supporter of this show. You've heard me talk about them probably dozens of times. All in one publishing platform. Everything from domain name registration to componentizing your website with what you want. Do you want a blog? Do you want to host a podcast? Do you, are you an artist? Do you want to put up a portfolio of your work? Um, dozens and dozens of great templates to choose from, but you can tweak those templates to your heart's content if you do know how to code with CSS and HTML, and you can get in there to your heart's content. And if you don't know the difference between HTML and CSS, or somebody you know has come to you for help with a website and you know they don't know CSS, uh, they can design and tweak the website in a purely visual manner right on Squarespace's website. Uh, great analytics. It's it's just a great service. People from this podcast keep signing up for Squarespace websites. They keep coming back to sponsor it some more. Put it in your back pocket. Maybe you don't need a website right now, today, in, in April 2021. Maybe later in the year you will. Well, remember Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show. That's squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you, when you do that, you get a 30-day free trial. When your 30 days are up and you want to keep the website, just remember that same code, TALKSHOW, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W. You save 10% off your first purchase. 10%. You could prepay for up to a year. Save a lot of money. My thanks to Squarespace for their continuing support of the show. All right, let's get into some complaining. Fast software is fast software is good software. That was a good article. What's what summarize the gist of your argument? Fast software is good software. You know, software that I think anytime your software basically fast software allows you to maintain a a flow state. So you can um, anytime software slows down, and and this is not just you know whatever if you're doing. ML processing or whatever, or doing a big database chunk, you know, 
whatever dump or whatever, that's going to take time. Sure, if you're rendering frames or whatever, that's going to take time. I'm not talking about that space of software. I'm talking about kind of interface components. I'm talking about keyboard accessibility. I'm talking about just the speed at which the software moves with you. So if that, you know, bicycle for the mind metaphor that Jobs is, you know, is always referenced. If if you take that uh, as kind of the base for this, it's like you want the bike to just be really beautifully tuned and you want the gears to change when you change the gears immediately. You don't want the derailleur to get stuck. You don't want the brakes to squeal. You just want the thing to feel like a beautifully engineered, well-oiled machine. And and fastness, I think, is a core part of that. So it's like as, as if you want to move between you know, this window and that window, if you want to carry a piece of data from this window to that window, if you want to select something, if you want to fix something, if you want to manipulate something, it all should happen instantaneously, I think, at the speed at which you want to want to do that action. That's kind of the base of it. I sometimes think back to uh, my days doing print graphic design and learning Quark Express at the Drexel Student Newspaper and how incredibly powerful Quark Express... I'm, I, I know it still exists. I'm sure it still does the same stuff it does. Um, what do you use for your book? Do you use InDesign? InDesign, yeah. yeah. InDesign yeah. Was, was Quark for Adobe. I mean, InDesign is, you know, it used to be that there was Quark and PageMaker, and PageMaker sort of fell by the, you know, fell out of relevancy and Adobe sort of backed the wrong horse there. And then they, you know, InDesign felt right at home to somebody who knew Quark. Uh, and it was, you know, I think it was unofficially codenamed the Quark Killer at Adobe. Um, but I think back to like the mid 90s and how at the student newspaper, and, and, you know, we had old computers too, old Macs, you know, we, and the whole place. Uh, more or less spent its entire budget on buying new new Macs every couple of years just to keep the thing running. Um, it, it, it Quark was so, and I know people used to complain about Quark the company, but but mm. Quark the you know, and that they're they're they apparently were run by uh, relatively unpleasant people, and that they had onerous licensing terms, and um, but man, the app was so lean and mean and fast and it made things anything that could be fast was fast and precise very precise and it it, and uh i still remember keyboard shortcuts and i remember that like if you were like if you selected an item on the pasteboard and we're using the arrow keys to nudge it around i think it defaulted to like hundreds of an inch and if you wanted to make it thousands of an inch, you just held down the option key while you use the arrows. Mm. And, and just little mm-hmm. things like that. And then if there was something else that was similar, like you'd have to, you know, you'd wanted more precise nudging, guess what? You use the option key. Um, I don't know. Yep. And it's like there's yep. so much, it, it was so, f- it, it, it was so fast on those old computers. Imagine how fast it could be today. And yet so much of our software doesn't have that, that feel and it doesn't have that precision. And one of the things, I know you and I have been uh, kibitzing behind the scenes before we come on, but talking <laughs> about frustrations with iOS and maybe yeah. iPadOS in particular, but I, st- I, I still think it's, 
I don't know what the answer is, but I know that Apple didn't find it yet. Which to to the question of how do you precisely select text on a tech on a touchscreen? It is right. incredible how often I'm trying to select text across lines and can't quite get the start and end exactly where I want it. Whereas 25 years ago, I was never off by a character. I just and yeah. I, and I never had to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've been thinking about this uh, quite a bit over the last couple of days because I figured we'd we'd uh, we'd we'd dig into this world and and I think like what's for me <laughs> the the answer to iPad OS is the MacBook M1. Mm. I just that's it. I, I I've I've really been thinking a lot about the miracle that is Mac OS. How actually iOS feels like what you'd expect software or operating systems to, to work like in, in a certain way. And in, in a way, iOS is really the sensible operating system. It is everything about it is totally sensible. Everything is sandboxed. Everything is locked down. There's walls everywhere. You're kind of on a, on an iPhone. I think it's on a, on a, or on a phone sized device. I think it is one of the most perfect instantiations of an OS out there. You know, it's like where you're just doing single tasks. You're not really moving data between things. You're not uh, trying to do anything that's too complicated. You're just, you know, it's like an in and out kind of device. You're not, theoretically, I know we all live with these things attached to our faces now, but theoretically, you know, the use case for for a, a mobile phone uh, or a mobile phone sized uh, internet device is to go in and get a little bit of information, you know, pay for something or whatever, and then get out. You know, it's meant to be in and out. And I think iOS is superb. It is so good. It is, you know, easy to set up, very little uh, vectors for attacks. You know, you're not going to, you don't have to run antivirus software. You don't have to worry about what you're installing. You know, it's like in a lot of ways, it's incredible. And then the problem was putting it on the iPad and then giving the iPad such an amazing screen and such an amazing processor in that 2018 iPad Pro and being like, here you go. Here's a, here's a Ferrari engine. Um, but we've strapped it to, you know, the Homer Simpson car. You know, and so you're just like, what? I can't, I can't use this thing. I can't, you know, I can't maximize the power of this engine. Um, except for in like very weird ways where it's like a single task of like, okay, I can render this video really quickly, but the process of like, importing the video from my high-end camera is onerous and impossible there's no file system that i can access you know it's just like all these all these things that kind of got in the way of really maximizing the value of what was on offer um but i'd say you can't it's really difficult to, to balance out that incredible simplicity of the the iphone experience and really the kind of like tuned perfection of that use case for general computing. And so anyway, that, that the tension for me with with iPad was always that. And then at the same time, you know, 2018 we were deep in the the quagmire hell of the Intel MacBook. It was the worst keyboard, you know, it was the processors weren't getting any faster, it was expensive, they were hot, the battery lasted like what 2 hours. The, key, the keyboard was anything. the worst part cuz that was self-inflicted on Apple's part, right? It it was like oh, the the so stupid. Just just the added indignity of these are not great computers, they're struggling, you know, the the 
the one that everybody wanted, the Retina MacBook Air, was years late. And, yeah. you know, it yeah. was because Intel didn't have chips that would let Apple make the Mac Retina MacBook Air that they wanted to make. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think... And that it, people wanted to buy, high, right? Yeah. No, well, in hindsight, the 2016 MacBook Pro is probably the worst computer Apple's ever released. Like, bar none. It's just... And maybe in the '90s or the '80s, like my history is a little fuzzy back then. We couldn't we couldn't afford Apple computers when I was a kid, so I was right. never paying attention to them. <laughs> so we were always like, if if we had anything, it was. Uh, I remember there was a period of Apple clones that existed. Oh, like a Scully. Yeah, like, what were they called? Scully. I forget what they were called. And they even had, but that they, was they, they stole like ROMs out of out of discarded Apple twos to like. <laughs> is that yeah. what they did? Uh, but that was all we. That was Not all we stole, had access to. Like, like they, Apple clone. <laughs> <laughs> Did they clone the 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 ROM like in Halt and Touch oh, Fire? Something that, like that. It was they were crazy. Yeah. They never really took off. And, no, but I mean, anyway. So I my Apple history back there is is extremely fuzzy. But I started with um like the late like night whatever was released in nineteen ninety nine the 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 Power Book that was in nineteen ninety and that was my first real Mac. And uh, I would say of all of the computers I've owned, yeah, the twenty sixteen MacBook Pro. The keyboard didn't work. It broke on me multiple times. The uh, USB-C ports were bad. I don't know if you 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 remember, but like USB plugs just wouldn't stay. Oh, in yeah, they yeah. didn't have they didn't have the clicking mechanism. They didn't have like that docking mechanism that everything seems to have now, where they have these really secure connections. Anyway, just oh, and the battery would last twelve seconds. You know, it was just truly horrible. So I think it was. All of those things together, and then you have this beautiful, super capable iPad, and you're just like, oh, I want this to be my main computer, yeah, and, but uh, I can't do anything on it. And there was a sort of stretch there. I know we've reiterated a lot in it since the M1s came out and talking about Apple's sort of, you know, that, that, that summit that they had me and Panzerino and, and Ina Fried come out for, um, where they sort of re- reemphasized their commitment to pro Mac hardware and software. Um, but it, it was a depressing number of years because Apple doesn't explain itself. And so they're not going to say, look, the reason we're still selling a $999 MacBook Air without a Retina screen, all of these years right. after the iPad and the iPhone have gone Retina and non-Retina just looks so bad even though it's you know a more expensive product you know that you could you know configure a macbook air for 1500 bucks and yet it was still not retina looked really dated tim cook gave an interview at one point where he said and people really latched onto it but he said something like that he does 80% of his work on an ipad it it created the perception that the Mac was on its way out right and and you know it, right. It, right. I, I never believed it but I was worried about it, right? Like I would not right. have bet on it, but I also understand why people who would have bet on it were thinking it. It would, they weren't crazy, right? The, the, the MacBook Air really, their most popular, single most popular Mac ever made by far, the MacBook Air. It, I, I, somebody, people who've worked in Apple stores have told me, you have no idea how many people. <laughs> <laughs> like by by what margin MacBook Airs? I don't know if that's true right now. I haven't. I, I don't know about. But I would I would bet that it is though, because I I think most people if they're going to buy an M1, they want 
a portable, not a Mac Mini, even though it's cool that the Mac Mini exists. And I don't think they see the value in the more expensive 13-inch MacBook Pro. I love it. I'm on. I'm, I'm on. I'm on a MacBook Air yeah, right now. It, it's you know. It, I it, I think that it's so incredibly popular, and yet they they seemingly abandoned it. Right, and they and they weren't going to explain why. They weren't going to say, right. "Look, we know that this is outdated. We have big plans, but we can't build." I mean, and part of it isn't is just Apple being Apple, and part of it is that no professional company is going to throw Intel under the bus. You know, that's just not how you do business. You know, um, right. But at the same time, they're not going to do what other companies do and cut prices and say, well, okay, the MacBook Air is getting old, but how about this? We'll sell it for $650 because it's three years, this ridiculous computer is three years old. <laughs> because Apple likes to maintain their price points so that when they do come out with a new one, it's not like, oh, the new Retina MacBook Air jerk the price up 50% because they had cut the price on the old one, right? So Apple, you know, and and the, how can I forget the trash can Mac Pro, which had which right. languished for even longer, <laughs> right? And it was ridiculously expensive. It started at $5,000 $5, and, you know, five years in hadn't been updated. It looked like... Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a dark period. And especially if, like... Me and you, you just feel like the Mac or Mac OS is the OS where it's the bicycle for your mind. And I use my iPad a lot and I love, you know, the iPhone, but I don't feel, I don't, I, I, I've often used the analogy of like feeling like you're pedaling uphill versus pedaling downhill to extend the bicycle for the mind thing. And yeah, the, the problem with that metaphor is that usually when you say, something's going downhill it means it's bad right, right but that's right. not what i mean i mean it's good it feels like the bike is propelling itself and you don't even have to you don't even realize you you know you're just all you have to do is steer and you don't have to exert any force to make the bike go down whereas when right. you know i i used to for i had a six-month internship uh right outside philadelphia and and at the there's a huge hill i had to ride my bike up every morning and <laughs> It was an internship over the summer, and I were, there were times where I they were always it never it was never an issue. I had my own <laughs> office, but there were times where I would just be drenched with sweat. But then on the way home, I got to go downhill, and it's sort of yeah. the way you want it, right? It's better to work hard to get to work, and then when the day's over and you get to go home and have fun, you just go flying down the hill at forty miles an hour. Um, right. I, I have that feeling about macOS, and. It it was worrisome to me when it yeah. felt like, you know, maybe they're not committed to it. And now we have these M1 Macs. And to me, uh, the best overall version of macOS in, in quite a while. Maybe I, it was like Catalina was so buggy for me for most of the year. <sighs> and I think in hindsight, it might be because they had to pull or chose to pull engineers to work on Big Sur so that it, Big Sur would be ready for the M1, you know, Apple Silicon. And so maybe being the release right before a processor transition was sort of a bad roll of the dice for Catalina. I was just going to say this, just this paucity of engineers issue at Apple always strikes me as insane. You know, that there's this limited number, this very, very limited number of engineers and they have to be kind of moved between big projects. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, but maybe that was the case with Catalina. Like, just all the all the all the the heavy hitters were off somewhere else, getting getting this thing ready for the. M1. Well, it does sound like that, right? How can you be the richest company in the world and be starved for engineers? But on the yeah. other hand, there is yeah. the mythical man month, right? And that I think Apple very consistently has always understood, at least from the next reunification onward. You know the. Steve Job under Steve Jobs' leadership, that um, the mythical man month is real, and that you've yeah. got to keep team. However many thousands of engineers they have, they get broken up into relatively small teams. I know a bunch of people who work at Apple, but most of the pe- almost everybody I know at Apple is effectively on a small team. And I think that's yeah. sort of the only way to get anything done. I, I, I you know. Yeah, well, the, but I think I think that that confluence of the Mac, you know, feeling like Apple was letting the the macOS world sort of like dissolve, you know, in all sorts of different ways, and the MacBooks themselves were just not good machines, not reliable machines, and then Catalina being a, a truly for me too, really unreliable OS, you know, that just felt. Um, Unpolished, which is not something you you want your operating system to feel like. It's like you want that that foundation to be as strong as possible. If you're working on all these big projects, and you know you're you're essentially your life force is connected with this operating system. Um, but the I think like the Phoenix Rising ascendance of Big Sur plus the M1s um, for me has just really made me feel good. <laughs> I just feel. I don't know about you, but I just feel like yes, and 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 you know the the corollary of that too is like I just don't worry now about iPad OS. It's like oh okay this okay as long as Mac OS is being cared for and and truly like this operating system is I think the aberration right. So it's like if you think about what happened to get to this point of this like and I really think macOS is a beautiful combination of usability and power and you know even some of the the system uh, security stuff they've added doesn't really irk, irk me as much as it irks other folks but like I th- I think some of it is is useful but like the fact that next had to happen right so steve getting kicked out of apple had to happen next had to happen next os being such an incredible os even if it if it had so few uh, user seats in the world, and then that being you know the foundation for Mac OS X, OS X or uh, well, a- a- Apple know, needed the other th- another thing that had to happen in there is Apple needed to for us to get from there to here. Apple's own next ge- quote unquote next generation operating system efforts had to spectacularly fail. Right. Because the worst right, thing, right. it seemed at the time that like Copeland, I, maybe you weren't using a Mac in the mid nineties, but Jason Snell and I have talked about it. It wasn't that they, you know, yeah. they, they had these next generation, several of them. It's not worth going into the details, but they were, it was always like Yoda talking to Luke Skywalker, always your eyes on the future, you know, and, and they were, Apple was always talking about operating systems that they plan to come out in three or four years, like crazy by today's standards. Like what, how, how can you be talking about an operating system years in advance while the one you're selling today is technically falling apart and in, in by mo- yep. by then modern standards um but the the it seemed at the time that the worst thing that could happen would be for this apple's next generation operating system to 
fall apart, just flame out. But the, I think in hindsight, the really worst thing that could have happened would have been if it had just been sort of like kind of good enough, right? And it would have, you know, then they wouldn't have had to buy next. We probably would have been left with something far less elegant and durable, right? That we'd still be talking about in the year 2021 as though it's, it's like you said, a phoenix rising from the ashes and is resurgent. Um, you know, sometimes it's better to fail completely than to sort of half-ass your way through it. Yeah, well, and I mean, look at the thing that they were able to pick up and run with. I mean, the fact that that this massive consumer oh, consumer-focused facing OS has a BSD core to it, the fact that there's a terminal that you can drop into and kind of install and compile and run pretty much any piece of software you can find in the world, like... I I am so grateful for this flexibility. And then on top of it, being able to kind of do a certain level of scripting. And, you know, I, I, I find it to be a pleasurable universe to live in. You know, and this is a universe I live in for, you know, sometimes 10, 15 hours a day. And I think it's, this is why in that like fast software, the best software essay, like I have this kind of passionate slash crazy obsession with this stuff is that this is a fundamental tool for most humans like living this is the main tool for most of us living today who are doing a certain kind of work out there in the world and like to not expect the best version of that tool is crazy it's like tantamount to like being like oh hey i'm gonna use i'm a, I'm a carpenter and the hammer i'm gonna use like sometimes the handles is gonna is just gonna fold in on itself. It's just gonna break. The handles we don't we just don't know how to make a good handle. And so I'm gonna be hammering some nails and like I don't know one out of every five hammers like the thing's just gonna kind of fall apart and I got to put a new handle on it. And that's just that's just the hammers we got to live with. That's the hammer. It's like no, that's insane. Like figure out how to make a good hammer. Like that's that's crazy. You would never as a carpenter accept right. that. And so I I feel similarly. The problem with software and OS is, is that it's obviously so complex and so abstract that for most people, they can't articulate what it is that doesn't feel right about the tool. And so when I write essays like that, I'm just trying to give uh, like engineers and folks working in, in companies, the fodder to be like, look, this is what, this is what I want us to aim for, you know? And I've had a lot of uh, CEOs um, and, uh, and independent software developers write to me and say, thank you for that. We've used this as like a, as a blueprint to kind of like, to think about features and to think about optimizations. And, um, you know, I think, uh, like Pat Patrick Collison's, you know, spoken to me about it. And, you know, I think that's it's kind of a philosophy internally that Stripe had been operating under, the, you know, this, this idea of fast quickness and, you know, the API fastness and API, um, smartness. And, you know, I think their company is a great example of, of doing that well, leads to success, you know, and like we were talking about earlier about these abstract things that you invest in, like, well, if I, if I invest in making it fast, because what, what you're talking about when you're talking about speed in software is effectively infrastructure and infrastructure, like I talk about in that, that Wired essay 
is something that a lot of people have a difficult time understanding the value of, right? Because it doesn't have this immediate return. But um, you have to believe, it's almost like a theology of, of, of software here, is that you have to believe that the investment in this stuff is going to lead you to some sort of, you know, afterlife heaven, you know, in, in, in just pleasurability and joy that is being spread to, you know, the whatever potentially millions or billions of users of your software out in the world. I think that's really, there's almost like an ethical component to it because so many people are affected by these decisions and that to give those people a smooth, beautiful tool is just, to me, it's like so fundamental when we live in these worlds all day long. I I know that, uh, and it's hard to peg the exact, what's the anniversary we should celebrate for Mac OS X? And I think the one that just passed a couple of weeks ago where it's 20 years to when the first version shipped to customers in boxes for yeah. $129. <laughs> Here's where you go to buy it. Uh, <laughs> I, that's as good of one as any. And I, this is one of those pieces where I started and it just never, it wasn't, it just wasn't coming out right. And I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something about the durability of Mac OS X that it, and I think you touched on this. Like, where would we be? We, we've got one OS that really works for me mentally. That's it. And if yeah. it wasn't for Mac OS X, yeah. I, I don't know what I would do. I, I really don't. I mean, there's only so long you could hold on to the old version and uh, what Windows? I, I my son has a gaming PC, so I've gotten a taste of modern Windows, and it is. I see why people like it, and my son likes his PC, and I, I get the whole gaming thing. But it is such a it's such a collection of technical debt and user interface <laughs> cruft that. It, it, it is kind of interesting that these these two OSs that are you know seen as rivals, but they really are. There's a very different fundamental philosophy to w- what an operating system sh- for users should do that Microsoft and Apple embody, and it's kind of interesting that the two that have have decade you know that that are truly. Uh, I mean, who would have thought? I mean, and it, like twenty five years ago, would you ever thought we're still using Macs and Windows? It, you know, it it didn't. That wasn't how computers worked in the eighties, in the early nineties. It was like new new things came and went, and operating systems died out and were replaced. You know, and the idea that you could have these operating systems that are here for decades, many decades, uh, you know, it had never been done before. So I don't know that we knew it could be done. But when you look at, when you look at Mac OS ten today, and you look at Big Sur. It is very hard for me to find a lot of spots in the OS where you would say, well, if they were going to do it all over again, it, they wouldn't have all this crap here. This, you know, system yeah. preferences is the one area a couple people have talked about. Like that's system preferences feels a little dated, especially the way that there's these little tiny boxes where you enter a bunch of things and the window isn't resizable and it, like you were talking about some of the new security features. I, I think they've done a good job of finding a middle ground of annoying us versus protecting us. The problem to me is the information architecture, that it's sort of hierarchical information that isn't presented in a hierarchical way, and it's hard to just see it all at once. And it's very strange to me that the iPhone has a better and more logical 
preferences app than the Mac. Sure, yeah. When it's the one that you're supposed to fiddle with less, right? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, in, in, in to what you were saying about us having still the same OSs as we had 25 years ago, that's that's what makes iOS so impressive is that it it came out of nowhere and it it's now is it the most used os in the world it must no, be is, or Andro- is android and, yeah. android is and it's what's well, it's the most used one that, that but it, it has it, <laughs> it, it, actually it, it, i was gonna say something snarky but then i realized you probably have a billion android listeners no i don't so. i don't think i do no i you should see uh, i think you'd be shocked uh I, I really? recently disabled a couple of weeks ago. I disabled Google Analytics. Um, I actually don't even have. I don't oh. have analytics on Daring Fireball at the moment. I guess I. That's no. I don't even. <laughs> I just just get it because you know what? It, it, here's what was. This is the way my sick mind works, Craig. I I wanted to get rid of Google Analytics, but I was stuck choosing what to try to replace it with. And none of, you know, there's Plausible and Fathom are at the top of the list and seem pretty modern and very privacy-minded. But I couldn't make a decision between them. And I was like, well, you know what? In the meantime, why don't I just shut off Google <laughs> Analytics? Because then I can, you know, I could get the, the little uh, privacy thing up in the Safari toolbar to stop giving me a less than sterling... Uh, great. Oh, interesting, huh? Uh, and I thought, here's what I thought: that'll force me to choose. And then it turned. It turns right. out I turned it off, and it's like, you know what? You don't need to know how many people are coming to your website. <laughs> you don't. All these, all these things that, yeah. Again, this is like the the you know technical debt that you carry forward, right? It's like we have this. You know, we put analytics on websites 20 years ago, and so we kind of keep doing it. And for me, I took Google Analytics off my site too a couple months ago. And I think the the most, the only real like tension I felt was, oh my God, I have like 18 years of unbroken yeah, data in the yeah. system. Like, do I really want to break, do I want to break that? stretch like that's but i've literally never looked at the historical no. i've never been like oh i need to go look at what happened in you know 2009 july 8th you know on my website so i i i think that speaks in general to like an over emphasis on archives like i'm a really big fan of deleting tweets i have an auto tweet deleter thing going on and i think also like for twitter this idea that all tweets should last forever was a flawed philosophy to start the the service with i just don't it doesn't make sense like i'm just sorry what most of us are saying on twitter honestly can just disappear forever and it, the world will not be worse for it like i've i've as i've gotten older i've kind of embraced this this idea that not everything has to be archived like i think that was a very old school uh web 1.0 idea that like nothing can be deleted everything should be archived you should have all um, your old email from 1997 (laughs) i I have never searched for an email older than like a a couple of weeks i mean i don't say never but you know effectively it's it's my party trick. You know, I'll be with an old friend and I have, I have my Gmail has my email from, from 1999 in it. I, I imported it all a long time ago. And, uh, I, it's a party trick I have with old friends where I'm like, let's find the first time we contacted each other. 
and I can just search and there it is. And I can see the first email that we sent to each other. And that is actually kind of neat to think about the genesis of a, of a friendship or a relationship and be able to pinpoint the very first moment of contact. But yeah, aside from that, it's kind of So pointless. what do you do for the automatic Twitter deleting? What do you, have, did you write your own script? Do you use a service? Yeah, no. Uh, well, Robin Sloan wrote a script. I mean, talk, Robin Sloan's a really interesting example of a, a writer who also is very technically minded and very technically capable. And uh, so he had he had a he has a Ruby script that just eats eats your tweets. You can set, you know, how long you want to look back from. So I have everything over over a week old being deleted, and you can set a kind of like a there's an array of tweet IDs to save. So I have a few that are saved. Um, but that's it. It just runs on it runs on my um, digital ocean server as a cron job. So you don't have to remember to do it. It just happens once a week. Just does it. Goodbye. Uh, I probably should do that. I don't know. I, I there, there's that that the pack rat in my back of my head wants to keep them. And there were the in those early years of Twitter. Do you remember? Favored, favored. I don't even know how you pronounce it. It was Dean, sure, Al- Dean sure. Allen's little thing where it would collect, you know, like the most. I forget. I think he purposefully never explained the algorithm because he didn't want it to be gained. Right. But effectively, uh, in a certain social circle, it was just the best jokes of the day, and it was like this is all. This is sure. all we did on Twitter is just crack dumb jokes and favorite the ones that we thought were funny. And then you could just check in on favorite every day and see like the best of them. And, you know, and that whole circle of people is how I got to know Merlin man. It's how I got to know, I might've known Merlin through the Mac circles, but like Adam Lissagor and so many people came out of that. And it's like, you know, I had some good jokes. I remember one. Here's one of my favorites yeah. from that era. I don't know what year it was, but I, the whole this is the whole this is the whole tweet. You don't you don't want to know what I would do for a Klondike bar. <laughs> do you remember that ad campaign? It was. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that's a great joke. I should probably stick to tech, but it, for me, I felt like a good joke, and I just. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty I hate good. To delete it. But so, I also don't want to go so, back. How would you well, even? How well, would I even find the tweet ID to protect it? But, but I it, it well yeah because it makes me sick every time I see stories though about people who like the the woman who got the job as the editor of Teen Vogue and she's only twenty seven or twenty eight and it's like she's clearly had yeah. a, you know her career was going places she's become the new editor in chief at Teen Vogue and somebody found a bunch of tweets she wrote when she was a freshman in college, 19. And they they were bad yeah, tweets. They were yeah. bad tweets. Bad tweets. Uh, she apologized profusely for them, but it wasn't enough. And she wound up losing the job. And it's like, you know what? When she wrote those tweets as a 19-year-old, she was not thinking of them as something that was anything other than ephemeral. You know, yeah. that there is something weird about Twitter where it feels ephemeral and it is not right by default yeah 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 well and even if even if you're deleting your tweets i think somewhere it's, they're being sucked up 
But like for me, I mean, there was my uh, Ku Klux Klan period of Twitter, early Twitter, where I was just supporting Ku Klux Klan stuff. Non- <laughs> no, no. I'd, uh, thankfully, I, I, I didn't have a, a weird period of like using Twitter as a, as a kind of like a racist soapbox or anything like that. But like for me, it's more just the weight. Like, like there's, there is a rat pack, a pack rat sort of element to it. And in general, I'm trying to get rid of stuff, physical or digital in my life. Like, I'm just trying to like, like I'm constantly selling things. Like I, 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 I hate buying new, I like love buying new tools. Like I just got a new printer, um, but I got it for a very specific purpose. And like, you know, the, the, the tension of buying the thing, getting the thing is now forcing me to like really use it. And I'm like, okay, I have to justify the fact that I brought this new object into my life, but I'm constantly selling stuff off. Um, you know, that if, if I don't use it, it's like, it's gone. And Japan actually has a really amazing kind of eBay, um, like tool that handles all of the shipping and everything is anonymized. So you don't know where it's being shipped to and they don't know who you are. And it's wonderful. And like the, you know, they act as like a escrow service. And so it's, it's super great. You can just sell high value stuff. I like, I, I don't, sell my um my old macbooks to the apple store i put it mm. on the service because i can get 50 50 more and they sell within mm. a day like it's just instant boom sold and um so i'm constantly getting rid of stuff physically and i just find digitally as well like what what is the value of me holding on to these things and so what i did before i started doing the tweet delete thing is i just i downloaded my archive and i have all of my original stuff on my hard drive and if i really 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 need that um it's there but uh i don't know it just feels like having that out in the open brought no value to me and i even think like there's this argument of like well what if people like quote your tweets in an article or link to it or embed it it's like well whatever i don't know like is the world gonna end if three of my tweets that were quoted in some article like aren't aren't there anymore like people will figure it out they'll get the context like you know do a screenshot of the tweet if you if you really want to include it in something like i think there are ways around it and uh you know to to sort of make stuff that you want to reference a little more uh, solid. But the thing that's really surprised me is I get emails all the time and messages all the time. Like, Hey, that thing you tweeted two weeks ago, where did that go? Like, like, um, which is shocking that people used Twitter or seem to use Twitter as this, like, as these pointers, like they book, I don't know if they're bookmarking the tweets to come back to or what is definitely something I don't do. I, I, you know, if I see a tweet that has something I like, it goes into things. It's like, okay, what's the link? Okay, it goes into things. I can set a reminder for me to come back to this in a week. You know, it's like, I don't rely on the original tweet object to be the uh, canonical reference for that thing that I'm interested in. Um, but anyway, but Google Analytics, similar sort of thing. I feel, I feel so much lighter getting rid of that crap. And plausible is great. I have really enjoyed plausible. And the only thing I use analytics for is to see if there's a um, some kind of incoming traffic spike, that means I've been linked somewhere that I just want to know about. It's just a way for me to keep track of like if if uh, a big site has sent me right. traffic. That's all I use analytics for. That's it. Uh, yeah, like if I link to you, right? Oh yeah, I got the, <laughs> got the the Gruber the Gruber LED light that goes. Off. I knocked a website offline a couple of weeks ago for, for the first time in a while. And mm. again, I don't think it's because the amount of traffic that comes from a link from me has decreased. It's just that 
server infrastructure has gotten more and more bulletproof and you know uh, wordpress sites are cached have caching on by default and i mean that was always the 9 out of 10 times where if i linked to something and the website went down it was cuz it was a default the no old caching. default wordpress without caching uh yep yep uh, yeah i don't know well, and Cloudflare today too. I yeah. mean, I have everything I, I I have up there is behind Cloudflare, so it's just it, that's another kind of miracle service. Like it's it's so cheap. I, I, I don't understand <laughs> how like, it can be so cheap. I really don't. I don't either. It's incredible. It's so cheap, and uh, you know, DigitalOcean too. Like the quality of server you get at DigitalOcean for the the price you pay is amazing to me. I love it. I love. I'm a huge DigitalOcean fan. Um, it's just been wonderful working on their, you know, their service, their, uh, you know, spinning up their service. I have a DigitalOcean server that all it is is it's a it's a WireGuard um, uh, VPN for me. Hmm. That's it, you know. And it's like it's cheaper it's cheaper to buy the DigitalOcean server, have it auto update, do all the security updates automatically, and uh, have that be my VPN in the U.S. than it is to pay for a big VPN service. And then this way I also know what the server is that is running the VPN. It's pretty amazing. All right, let me take let me take one last break here and thank our third and final sponsor, our good friends at Mac Weldon. Oh, I am wearing Mac Weldon right now. I know I think it's like the third spot in a row where I've been able to say that and I'm like looking down at this hoodie that I'm wearing and it's Yep, Mac Weldon. I've got Mac Weldon stealth boxer briefs on underneath my jeans. They make men's basics and everything from socks and underwear to workout clothes, outdoor activity, the hoodie, my beloved hoodie that I'm wearing right here. Um, it's just a great, great company with all sorts of great clothing. Uh, perfect for everyday wear to be layered underneath workout gear if that's what you want. And they've got sweatpants you can wear outside without feeling like you're wearing sweatpants. I bought a pair of sweatpants. John Syracuse was on the show and gave me a hard time for going through the whole 2020 pandemic without sweatpants. <laughs> Apparently, that's what everybody did. I got a pair of sweatpants. I've been wearing them. I'm probably going to buy another pair. I kind of like it. Still feel a little weird leaving the house in them, but uh, pretty nice for lounging about the house. Nice, nice pockets. I'll tell you what I hate about sweatpants, in theory, is I don't want the, like, if I got my phone in my pocket, I don't want it falling out of my pocket because they're sweatpant pockets. Mack Weldon, you don't have that problem. Nice, deep pockets, very nice, secure design and cut to the pockets. Keeps your stuff from falling out when you sit on the couch. Uh, like I said, socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, active shorts. Mack Weldon has it all. Great look, great feel. I really love this stuff. I, I feel like by the time I'm done with this podcast, everybody who listens to it, we're all going to be wearing the same Mack Weldon shirts and hoodies. They have a great loyalty program. Level one gets you free shipping for life. Once you hit it, you just get free shipping. Once you reach level two, and that's, you just have to spend 200 bucks. You spend 200 bucks on clothes. You get to level two. You get 20% off every subsequent order for the next year. Mac Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you keep them. Don't mail your used underwear back to Mac Weldon. You keep them, they'll send you your money back, no questions asked. Now, you can get 20% off your first order by going to MacWeldon.com slash talk show and just use that promo code talk show. MacWeldon.com slash talk show, promo code talk show gets you 20% off your first order. 
Uh, all right. I mean, let's talk some tools. I want to know how you make a book. Okay. So what? Pain, very painful. Well, all right. InDesign for layout. InDesign for layout. Yeah, I was I was a Quark person too when I was a university. I I learned uh, on Quark. This is like two thousand two thousand one, and uh, it was it was really fast. It was really good. I think the thing that Quark did badly was font rendering. There's something about I remember InDesign when InDesign came out. It just oh, I know had, what you're talking about. It was the open type support. Open type support. Yep. That was it. Yep. Yes. And that that was that was infuriating. Yeah. It was infuriating that Quark this is like such a fundamental bit of digital typography that Quark dropped the ball on. And I think that was what pushed me to InDesign. And I remember using the InDesign yep. beta and just and I remember the ligatures and all you know the other open type st- stuff just working and being like, okay, well I guess I gotta use this yep. thing now. Um, I remember, t- I remember and I've been an InDesigner ever I since. I remember talking to Dean Allen about it and and it basically it was yeah. like, look, you're gonna have a whole laundry list of things you liked better about Quark than InDesign. But InDesign does open type right. Open type makes the old pre-open type postscript fonts look like junk and therefore you need to use InDesign because there's too many there's too many yeah. good features in there and it was a very strange I don't know if it was technical debt I don't know what happened the other thing about Quark 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 mm. made bad design a little too easy I mean the the one thing that Quark mm. did that I'll you just could never forgive them and once you know that designers in the 90s were doing this with everything you can't you couldn't unsee it but I guess most of the flyers and stuff people made are, are long gone. But you could select a range of text and then just with one little click set it to be like 90% width to make it, you know, like to fake a slightly huh. skinnier font. Or if it like didn't quite fill the space, set set it to 110% or 150%. Mm. And so people would like, if you wanted like a like a tall, skinny sans serif, you it was so trivially easy to just use like Helvetica and just make it skinny. But if you know anything about typography, it was, you know, you know, it was optically squished and was a crime against typographic. (laughs) So InDesign for layout. What about InDesign for layout? Um, Yeah. InDesign for layout. I tried, I looked at affinity publisher and I think affinity publisher, I, I really like affinity as a company. And I think um, I use Affinity Photo actually for all of my. I, I actually don't use it for much because I don't do. I use Lightroom for my photo editing and my catalog editing. So I keep all of my my serious photos in Lightroom Classic. Or Lightroom CC is lacking a few features that to me make it unusable as a professional. And so I'm still in Lightroom Classic. And I think a lot of people who are professional photographers are in Lightroom Classic. And the fact that it's called Lightroom Classic is a little bit uh, unnerving because yeah. <laughs> it feels like feels like Adobe wants to get rid of this thing. And uh, so I'm in Lightroom Classic for, for organizing my library and for doing photo, 90% of my photo edits. And um, I use Affinity Photo for doing essentially photo resizing and exporting in different sizes. Um, it just I just find it's exported to be really fast. I just find Photoshop uh, to have gotten so slow over the last decade. And uh, a lot of it's... Um, 
like if you do the the web exporter uh, dialogue, it comes up and it like loads yeah. a web page or yeah, something. I don't yeah. know. It's just also sl- it's very bad. It's very very bad. Affinity super fast, super easy. I love supporting independent software companies. You buy it once, you don't think about it again. Yada yada yada. And so I tried Publisher, but it just didn't. The problem is that if you're working with uh, real printers, like big printers, is that they want InDesign files. Like for them, it's easy to work with InDesign files, and they want they may want to do things like check your the you know is is all of your type properly set in K you know or did did you accidentally set it as an RGB value you know and so they want to they want to double check all these things and so having InDesign makes it a little bit easier to interface with these printers um, out in the world so that's kind of why I'm still in there I'm not using. Honestly, I think InDesign from 20 years ago, whatever the feature set was, was yeah. enough for me. I don't do I don't do anything that InDesign I think has added in the last 10 years. Um, so anyway, that's that. And uh, for writing, um, I use Ulysses to do a lot of drafting of um, of essays. And the reason I started using Ulysses was because a it let me use Dropbox as my folder. So I like having my files on my local hard drive. And I like that Dropbox then syncs, you know, in the background. And I actually have a NAS now that is pulling down a full Dropbox archive onto the NAS. And so it's, it, I feel like it's backed up there as well. Um, but I, the reason I liked Ulysses was a lot of other of those like minimalist text editors back. I don't know when I started using it eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, they didn't, allow Dropbox. A lot of them were iCloud-based or um, you couldn't, you couldn't, this is a real critical thing, is like you'd have, you can have a folder in Ulysses where you can manually sort the files in the folder. So you don't have to have them sorted by date or by title. And for me, being able to move files around, so treating a folder like a table of contents was really critical for me. And when you're working on a book, it's super, super critical. That's like, it's sort of like you letting a, a, a touch it's not a full outliner, but that's the idea behind right, real right. outlining software, where by which I mean not like when you're in Apple Notes and just type a dash and you, and you're you're typing in a thing that looks like an outline, but an outline where you can take any heading and just drag it up and down to reorganize it. Right. Exactly. And so, yeah, and Ulysses also does a couple of neat things where. Like if you select a number of files that are next to each other, it like just creates one document with all that in it. So you can kind of, um, you can, I mean, you can just feel like you're working. It, there's a flexibility to it. I think that when you're working on a book with chapters, that is great. And then Ulysses also has super powerful PDF export um, styling. So like I, um, uh, you can write essentially CSS for the PDF exports. And so you can, you can do really beautiful typographically good looking exports in Ulysses. And I, I love using that to basically put out the drafts, uh, print out drafts so I can do, I can do checks and stuff on the, on the, on the pieces. And so there's a, there's a huge Ulysses kind of element to the, the editing process. And then depending on, um, the length of the thing or how, what stage I'm at. Sometimes I'll bring it into Google Docs to work with editors. I find actually Google Docs is, de- is by far the best 
shared editing space in terms of writing notes in the margins, making suggestions, you know, okaying or right. rejecting suggestions, having conversations. It's just Google Docs has a lot of issues and Google Drive is one of the worst pieces of software. Like, I don't understand how Google Drive is so difficult to use. It's to me beautifully complicated <laughs> like i can't i could never find what i'm looking for in google drive like there's just some there's some philosophy of engineering that's happened there that about how it's going to show you what it's going to show you and how it's thinking about hierarchies that just doesn't make sense to i think a normal user and i had this thread on twitter that's probably been deleted um about uh google drive and like just hundreds of people chiming in being like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's so tough to use. But Google Docs, the trick with using it is to just put links to Docs in a text file and don't even touch Google Drive. And so, but Google Docs is, it really is. It's a great piece of software. And Google Docs actually does one thing in the fast software, best software uh, philosophy that I wish I could do on Mac OS. And it drives me crazy. And if anyone listening out there can, can program a shortcut. I have looked into this and I have not been able to figure out a solution to this problem. But in Google Docs, if you have a spelling, a misspelled word, and you curse, you have the cursor on the word, you can tab into this, into the spell correction options and hit enter. And then it, so you never have to take your fingers off the keyboard. You don't have to use the trackpad. You don't have to right click on anything and select, you know, the, the, the corrected word. You can just inline right there super quickly select the uh, correct spelling. So like things like that, I really love about it. But mainly the collaborative component is the is the super. Do you know about the F5 shortcut? I, this isn't going to solve your problem with misspelling. But do you know that on, in text edit or any, any Cocoa app, you can start typing a word and if you hit F5, you get auto-completion based on the, the dictionary. Right. So right. I remapped that keyboard shortcut because the F5 it's very hard to type. And if you have, you know, and right. you have to turn off to get it by default, you have to turn off the, the magic, you know, keyboard brightness or whatever F5 does on your thing. And if you're using a MacBook Pro with a touch bar, you know, how you get F5. So I, I've remapped it to control return. And so, cause I pinky okay. for control, right hand for return. Sure. And then it's, it, it's this universal autocomplete, huh. but I know, but that's, I, huh. I know exactly what you're talking about though. Right. So you've got the insertion point on the red underlined word and you're like, just give yeah. me the list. Don't, don't, don't yeah. Don't yeah. make me switch modes. Yeah. I've got to go to the trackpad. I've got to right click. I've got to, it's, and the thing is the hit areas are so small, right? It's like, Oh, I've got to select just the right word. It's, it's uh, it's it's exhausting. It's just weird. And Google anyway, Google Docs has a, has a really nice solution for it that I would so love. How do you invoke it? Does it? So you Mac just OS. you hit the tab key? Is that what you do? I think so. I'm I'm pretty sure. I I, I was testing it the other day, and I think it, there is. The, it's either you hit the tab or I think it's tab, and it just yeah. brings you up into that uh, into that pop up, um, and seems to work pretty well. I don't know. It did. It uh, it's it, it's an elegant, seems like an elegant solution, pretty obvious solution, but I haven't seen any other text editor do it, and it kind of drives me nuts. And the, even the the command semicolon, I know that's kind of like the universal uh, spell checker invoker. Even that, you know, it's like you'd think that if you're doing that, it would it would 
move, you know, because it's like right now I'm doing it in this notes file and it's selecting the red squiggly underlined words, which is great. But you'd think it would select it and then show you here are the here are the options, you know, and also giving you the option to please learn the spelling, which is a great thing to be able to just do from the keyboard. That that's so. another one of those aspects of Mac OS ten where maybe there's a little bit of cruft in that user interface, like the system wide spelling checker. It sort of hasn't yeah. really, I mean, they've updated the style of the windows, you know, each time they've revised the style of the windows and the, the operating, you know, the, the, the interface, but it's like the same basic, Hey, it's like a floating panel and everything's the, everything's really small. Right. Like it, it's just the fun, yeah. every, yeah. you know, yeah. and it, just because they haven't resized anything from 2001, 2002, when pixel for pixel, that was actually a reasonably sized spelling checker panel. I bet it's from, yeah, next, yeah, I'm sure. To be honest. Yeah. I bet next had that command semicolon. It's such a weird command, right? Command yeah. semicolon. Um, it, I bet that's from next. It's a holdover. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, uh, you know, it's like people forget that actually next, the text components of next had essentially like hyperlinking built, it had links right. built in, you know, like that. If you right click on something and want to make it yep. a link and say, make uh, link at, you know, that's all from yeah. next. That's, that's 30 years old. That's a 30 year old interaction. And you know what? I was editing the shared document that we have for this episode of the show and I was doing it on my iPad today and I thought, you know, this is something I should remember and bring it up when I'm talking to Craig. Like it, on the Mac, I know how to make something a link. I right click on it or go to the edit menu and there's edit link. And then you get a thing. I know the shortcut, isn't it? Command K. My, my fingers want it to be command yep. K. You yeah, hit yeah. Command yep. K. You command paste K. in a URL and now you have a link. And how do you do that on, on iPad OS or iOS? There's there's no way, you know, it, there's no standard oh, way across all apps. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. There is something, it, sometimes I start thinking about things like that and how nice it is that it was so uh, consistent. It is still so consistent across multiple applications yeah. and that the way you do it in text edit is the same way you do it in Apple Notes. It's the same way you do it in Apple Mail. It's It works in text view in Safari you know, and that the text view in Safari, even yep. though it's a web browser, inherits all of these things from Coco for the spelling checker and stuff like that, and the right-click menu. And that even in Safari, you can have this text field and get the standard control-click menu. I think this point of, like, how do you make something a link is it, it, it perfectly embodies the iOS you know, philosophy, which is that you weren't going to use this thing. When iOS was made, the idea that people be, you know, copying and pasting links between, there, there was no, there wasn't even copy and paste, but like bringing links <laughs> right. between apps, you know, it's just like, that wasn't, that wasn't the use case. So it, I think that it speaks to like, there's a fundamental core of an operating system that gets made at the start. And there's a fundamental set of decisions, philosophical decisions about how the OS should function. And you can't change those over time, for better or for worse. And, you know, like, this macOS link thing is 30 years old from, you know, from Next. And iOS just didn't, you know, didn't have that philosophy in the in the beginning. And so now, it's like we're trying to bolt these things on, or Apple's trying to bolt these things on, like, on iPad OS, and it just feels non-native. You know, it's just... And it, another thing for me, like, on um, 
on the iPad, iPad OS, is the keyboard buffer doesn't exist between apps. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, and it's so like you're command tabbing and you start typing. Yeah. And you, you yeah. think that the app, you know, you're going from notes to yeah. messages and you just start typing and then you, you've lost like the first two words because they, they just didn't show up. Exactly. Yeah. I know that it's the, those sorts of things. It's just like, okay, this wasn't made for these sorts of interactions. That's what it right. says to me. And you just have to, you have to accept that. It's not going to, I don't think it's ever going to change iPadOS. We'll, we'll not get a keyboard buffer anytime soon. They did fix a bug that was driving me nuts about two years ago where the spotlight search didn't, it, it like your first couple of characters in a spotlight search right. just always got lost for me. I'd do command space, start yeah, typing, yeah. and it doesn't matter how many times I got burned by it, I would do it again because whenever I'm thinking, oh, I should search spotlight for that, I, I've already started typing the query before I even remembered, oh, this is going to eat my first few characters. And I brought it up to somebody right. at Apple. I filed a radar, I had a thing. And then they were like, they took a look at it and they were like, huh, you're right. Yeah, that does that for me too. Huh. And then it got, it got fixed <laughs> in like a point upgrade to, you know, like iPad OS 12.7. But it's like, how did that happen? How did, how did more people inside Apple not, not, not be driven <sighs> nuts by this? Well, well, and also here's another aspect of that. Why are those first characters so important for search? That, that, that always, it always shocks me how if you, if you miss that first character, and this happens when you're on like the little keyboard or something on, a, on an iPhone, Spotlight often will not be able to find, like if you're trying to open mail and you type AIL, it doesn't find mail or if I, it, it, or if I search for egg mod instead of, I, I miss the CR. Yeah. And it's like, how does that not find yeah. you anyway? It should. It, it, to me, there's a there's a kind of brokenness with search in general that over emphasizes that first character. That I don't know. To me, that it feels like it should be fixed. I feel like Alfred on uh, you know on, um, on the Mac on Mac maybe is a little is a little more forgiving. There's I mean it's just fuzzy right. search. There's like there's algorithms right out there that are very easy to just bolt onto any search field and you get that that capability to get really accurate fuzzy search that's not contingent on that those first couple of characters like um uh fzf do you know that that little application for the channel no, i don't think so fzf no it's this crazy it's this crazy search tool that um allows you to basically do like infinite infinitely deep searches on your computer based on you know super fuzzy search terms so you can do cd and you can type like test and then you do you invoke it by by uh i think doing uh, two asterisks and then hitting enter and then it, it turns it into an fzf search and basically it auto completes you know in all of the subdirectories anything that has the word test in it and then you can just you can select the directory you want to go to but like you don't have to you can anyway you can you can type a, a series of words that you know will kind of get you six directories deep to the place you want to go um and then invoke fzf and anyway it's a very fast way to move and it just it speaks to the power of like if you know how to use and expect fuzzy search to work properly, it's so empowering. It's like truly bicycle for the mind. It's like you've just amplified your ability to kind of traverse directories or move through your OS, you know, five times faster. It's just one of those kind of like really cool uh, magic tools. Um, but, but yeah. 
it would be nice if if uh, we could correct words from the keyboard. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right. Last but not least, the <laughs> other. All. So, is that everything for book production? Right. You've you got InDesign for design. Uh, you've got uh, you've got uh, Ulysses for writing, Lightroom, and maybe some Affinity for photo editing. Yeah, that's 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 the crux of it, and. Um, yeah, I don't. I've tried to use things like Scrivener, and I just find I just find it's it's an app that doesn't work the way I want to work. It's a little little bit too too onerous, a little bit too finicky. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 the core. Of so, it. Kisa by Kisa. Am I pronouncing it right? Because I, I I probably would have said yeah, perfect. Kisa by Kisa. Kisa by Kisa. Uh, your Kisa by Kisa. first run was. Uh, uh, as we head down the home stretch here, you you decided to do a thousand copies, and it yep. sold out in like a, a day, <laughs> like two, basically like two days. Uh, yeah, it and you know, it, and again, I don't think it's it's not self effacing. It's not fake modesty. It just sounds like that's a lot of copies of a ninety five dollar book to sell that quickly. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. But, that's why I only made a thousand of them because I thought, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to sell a thousand of these. My expectation, like, and I'm truly, I'm not like feigning false modesty here. Like, my expectation was, I'll make a thousand of these, and then it'll take three years to sell them all. That was what I expected. Just keep them in a warehouse as they slowly go out. It. This is a hard thing yeah. to talk about on a podcast. It is a lovely book. How? How? What is the? Thank you the name of this cover style because it is it looks like a hardbound book it kind of feels like a hardbound book but it actually has a little bit of flex to it that a true cardboard hardbound book doesn't have yeah i mean flexibind is uh is is essentially i think what it's mainly called um, flex, flex binding, flex bound, but it's all it is. You're just taking the, um, the boards of a hardcover book, uh, that are normally thicker and you're just sort of, you know, choosing thinner boards that aren't the, you know, it's, it's kind of between a paperback and a hardcover. Um, but, uh, I think it's like, I think we ended up at like 0.7 millimeters or something like that was the final. We did a bunch of tests to find, uh, uh one that, that had the, the right feel. And then what happens is when you, when you, cover them in cloth um it gives it this extra durability so the thing that drives me nuts about hardcover books is just they feel a little bit violent in the hand because it's like it's just so hard and like the corners are kind of digging into your into your into your uh, palm or whatever and it i really love um you know the book of the feel of paperbacks but i understand that the perception of a paperback as being a cheaper thing is real and for you know for good reason because they do they don't last as long the binding's a little bit different but like on this book we're doing a hardcover binding and we're doing uh you know hardcover style cloth wrap on the covers but we're using um you know boards that are are closer to paperback boards but you know what you end up with is this what i feel like is like the perfect the perfect match of tactility and protection. So the book is is very protected. It's not going to get uh, damaged, really. I mean, you can scuff up the, the the cloth or whatever, but it's not going to rip on you like a paperback would. Um, and yet, when you hold it, 
the hope is that it feels like intimate and kind of nice to hold. It's just comfortable, you know, and pleasurable to have in the hand. And uh, I actually saw this binding for the first time 20 years ago on this um, this book called Rome City Secrets that was published uh, as this little guide, this thick little guide to Rome. And it used the same kind of binding. And I've just always been spellbound. I've just thought, oh, this is it. This is the, this is the most amazing binding. I love this. And uh, I've been trying to use it for a while. And finally, with this book, I had enough latitude of being able to do what I wanted to do and, and run tests. And um, uh, we were able to kind of dial this in into a place that I think feels really feels really good. So yeah, that's part. And, and some people have written in and been like, you know, um, I thought this was a hardcover book. You know, uh, some I think a couple of people have been upset <laughs> because they thought they they ex- they expected a hardcover because right. they like, oh, I didn't realize this was a paperback. You know, why is it ninety five dollars? Well, literally, the only thing different between this and a and a, and a and a quote unquote real hardcover is like about half a millimeter of board. That's about it. Um, otherwise, this is this is. Definitely, trust me. The costs of producing this thing are hardcover costs, and the the durability of this thing is going to be hardcover durability. So don't worry about it. But be, be, um, so the but, first uh, the first edition sold out, thousand copies. Now though, people can still boom. buy the second edition. Is that what you're calling it? Second. Second edition, yeah, yeah. Because the first edition is stamped, numbered, and signed, and so that was what made it limited and the second edition is also limited we did 1200 copies in the second edition i think there's about 200 left um and uh it's not <clears throat> it's not stamped or signed so it's not editioned i've got um, i've got copy but i've got copy 200 on the button not 199 Sweet. nice not 201 copy 200 boom there you go uh i got a i got a I, you must have a bunch of toshin books right they're oh, just yeah, the yeah. best. Toshin is this company that makes the world's greatest coffee table books. And some of them are insanely expensive. Um, and I've got a couple of the Kubrick ones. And my 2001, I got copy 999, which I thought was, I don't know. I don't want to, I'm not, I want to be one of those guys who, you know, there's all sorts of numbers that you can read into a thing. I don't want to be one of these, you know, it means something, but I, I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool. So the other recent project project you've had is a short film. Is this the first short film you've done since you've been doing special projects? Yeah, well, it's the first short film I've ever done ever since before. It, it's anything. so good; it makes me sick, Craig. Uh, <laughs> I, I so how much how much of the work did you do? So the the it's on YouTube. It is. Uh, I don't have the note in front of me. What's the title? Pizza toast and coffee, which is the same subject as Kisa by Kisa, that you've you know gone on these extended journeys in Japan to experience pizza toast, which really does look delicious. <laughs> I, it really does. It looks so good, and coffee, <laughs> and it's like I don't know what what yeah. more do you need for sustenance. But this this short film, I'm not just saying it because you're on the show and you're a pal. It is beautiful. But did you do all of it uh, yourself? I mean, did you you shot yeah. it, you lit it? It is just, and it's just, it all just takes place in a, on a rainy like mid morning. It looks like, yeah, yeah. I had to. So so the, the a little bit of background on it is one of the, one of the th- things I've kind of 
codified, I guess, like when I was writing up the the year in review in January this year, um, was that is that I, all of the work I do is essentially to make books. So everything is pointing towards books. And every project, sub-project I do has to be either in support of the books or adding some other uh, element to the book or amplifying the book. And so, like, I just find for me that that is, that is the, the, the most meaningful and simplest way to organize all of my creative work. Everything is aiming towards producing books. And so all of the walks I was doing, and I'm still doing these, I, you know, for listeners who don't know, I, I spend about two to six months out of the year walking across Japan. I'm about to jump, go off on another big walk in May. Actually, it'll be another six or 700 kilometers. I just did one in, in, in November that was 700 kilometers. Um, and so from these walks, I'm producing books, and Kisa by Kisa was kind of the first book from these walks. And so I also last year, because of by dint of pandemic, I just started getting more into video, doing the live streams and playing with cameras and thinking about video just because we couldn't go anywhere. And so um, that just made me re, you know, look at the video world once again, which I hadn't taken a peek at in a long time, and realize like the true advancements in photography right now are in videography. Like it's a renaissance yeah. moment for anyone who wants to do film. It's crazy how amazing and how quickly uh, consumer pro cameras are yeah. advancing. And, uh, and so it was sort of a confluence of all these things of like going to these Kisa, these Kisa ten, these Kisa is a Japanese style old cafe. These are cafes that were mainly started in say the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And they're mainly run by people who are just about to retire. And so they're all kind of just about to disappear. The numbers are dropping precipitously. So I would, in these walks across Japan, I, you know, the, the one organizing principle, anywhere you go in the country, it may, they maybe do have different foods or, do, you know, a local specialty or, or whatever. But the one thing that is consistent is the presence of kisa and barbershops. You got those everywhere. Lots of barbershops, lots of kisa. And, uh, and so I would just start going to these kisa on, on these walks. I'd see them and just the stories. And they, they, to me, felt like they embodied, um, really this cultural touch stone that was easy to overlook as a, as a Japanese person because you just kind of, you see them as inevitable and also as kind of throwaway things. Ah, whatever. It's a kisa. Um, but really, they, they're, they're sort of community centers. A lot of Japan is depopulating in the countryside. And so the Kisa are these de facto community centers. And so you go to them and they're just full of these octogenarians and they're all like kind of, you know, chatting and farmers catching up and, and stuff like that. And so to me, they became these really interesting and important cultural hubs. And pizza toast just happens to be kind of the food that they're, that, that's one of their staples. Um, and the reason why it's a staple is because a lot of these are post-war institutions. They didn't have full kitchens. And so, to make pizza toast, all you need is a little toaster oven. And so it's a, it's an easy to make food. Um, that's kind of fun and, and sort of riffs off of, uh, you know, Western food, um, but can be done, you know, very easily, you know, with, with next to nothing in terms of ingredients. Um, and so that's sort of the, the kind of the history there of pizza toast in the, in the context of Japanese society. Um, and, uh, so this, I'd done this book on Kisaten on Kisa, and I had been doing all this video work. And when I when I put up my um, my Craigstarter, because when I launched that Kisa book, I kind of I was looking at Kickstarter, and I realized like 
the value that Kickstarter provided for the cut they took, I, it just kind of didn't exist there for me anymore. I have my audience. I didn't feel like Kickstarter was going to drive more audience to, to buy the thing. So I was looking at Shopify and I realized I could basically clone Kickstarter on Shopify um, using templates. And I spent a couple of weeks and I just I made my own Kickstarter and I was able to, you know, the benefit is you can design it. Um, all in any way you want. Kickstarter, you're stuck with their templates. I could make my tiers however I wanted. One big benefit is I could offer discount codes, which Kickstarter doesn't let you do. You can't offer discount mm-hmm. codes to anyone. And so all of these kind of... These, so you can, these offer, you can offer a discount obvious, to, your, to your members. That's, which is exactly what I did. My goal with the membership program is to return the full membership in discounts every year mm-hmm. to every member, at least. Like if you if you pay a hundred bucks for the membership and you are interested in my work and you want to buy my books or whatever, you will get that hundred dollars back absolutely within the year through if you choose to to take care of the take take advantage of the discounts that I offer. So members got fifty dollars off on the book. I feel like that's a pretty pretty powerful incentive. So the membership there to me feels like basically it's everyone's making an investment. It's like micro seed capital for me to be able to do these projects. And then once I can get the project done, I want to return that capital. Plus, you know, they get the, the, the hopefully psychically positive return of like this new piece of culture being in the world. So it's kind of a way of amplifying that quote unquote seed capital. But when I was, when I was making, you know, when you run a Kickstarter or Craig starter, you know, you make these like goals. And you're like, well, man, if we sell 500 books, I'll do this. And, and one of the goals I made was if we sold 750 books during the pre-sale campaign, I would make a pizza toast YouTube show. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, and I was like, I just, I, I was like, I'm definitely not going to sell 750 books. And so I'm definitely not going to have to make a pizza toast YouTube show. And sure enough, we sold 750 books in a day. So, um, that made me go, okay, all right, let me look at this video world again. And I started getting into cameras to document the production process of the book. And, uh, you know, just a few things led led to another. And I just thought, okay, for this pizza toast show, quote unquote pizza toast show, why don't I do a vignette, a little profile of one of the cafes that I went to? And, um, you know, it can be this this kind of anthropological archetype or archive of this thing that is going to disappear. This cafe that I shot will be gone in 10 years. I'm, I'm almost hundred percent certain it, it doesn't have 10 years left in it. And so to kind of have a 4k archival quality video of this moment, I, I felt like that, that was a really nice bonus thing to the book you know and it kind of points back to the book and the book points it points to it you i and and you talk about making a short film like this as being book-like in concept because it has a beginning and an end right here is the thing you can hold it here's the whole thing you can just hit play start to finish it gets to the end and you're done you've you've enjoyed the movie it's right that's the one thing that to me is a little weird it's a little incongruous to see it on YouTube where YouTube is this. <laughs> and I, I've, I'm, I'm more pro YouTube. I mean, I've started putting my live talk shows on YouTube. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to be a YouTuber, but the thing that I find so unsettling, and I feel like you and I've sort of touched on this, but that the, the, the endless scroll ha- has a psychological yeah. weight that I don't, 
I think we're starting, we collectively are starting to come to grips with. And I think that that might be one of the things that's driving people back to things like newsletters and subscription sites. And I can subscribe to Matt Iglesias's Slow Boring and a new one comes in and I can hit the space bar a couple times to read it. And then I get to the bottom and it's done, right? And then I've, I'm caught up. Yep. Um, you can catch up on Daring Fireball, right? When you just start looking for new posts, scroll until you hit one that you remember seeing before, and then you know you're caught up. And you can close the tab and come back tomorrow or the next day, and there'll be new posts waiting for you. I, I think that the endless scroll of Twitter and Instagram and YouTube has a psychological weight. And your little movie stands so... <laughs> A thwart of that, right? You're, it, it's effectively a silent film. I mean, it's the the sound effects yeah. of uh, our rain hitting the windows, and um, you know, to- toast uh, flopping. Co- There's a flop flop of toast. pour over coffee being brewed. Uh, I'm a big pour over man myself. Is that is that is that, is that uh, oh yeah uh, the most popular thing in in Japan? Yeah, it's pretty pretty classic pour over. Pour the old cafes have been doing have been doing pour over um usually often with with uh, cloth mm-hmm. drips, cloth nets. Um pour over and then there's also the siphon method where do you, you know this thing where it's like a it's, it looks like a chemistry set and it's got two yeah, bowls yeah. and the water yeah, kind of yeah. burbles up. Yeah. That's another that's like, Japan's been doing that for a very very long but time. But it is. It's just a contemplative little vignette uh and it just is so it, it could in some ways it is a very literally a very quiet little movie but it also it it it's different from the standard fare of youtube it it's i i found it very striking it's well i believe me i i would if i could not have it on youtube i would prefer to put it somewhere else i i thought about this and i looked around and the reality is is that if you want to host 4k video somewhere it's right. tough to do. And I just don't really like Vimeo. I just find Vimeo, the interface isn't that good. The algorithms aren't as good. YouTube, for all of its flaws, it has the best scaling algorithms, the best uh, delivery algorithms, the best like in the moment, re you know, resize and rescaling algorithms. So like, it's very bandwidth aware and friendly you know it goes from you know really crappy connections to you know fiber connections and it kind of handles it all flawlessly like all of that i think is really important and i don't see that present in any other um uh consumer video platform that can host a 4k video also you know the i looked at the cost of doing it on my own and it's crazy It's it's so expensive. Like that that thing I uploaded is a couple gigs. That's a that's like a two or three gig video, and you know if you have last I looked, you know it had like fifteen thousand views or whatever. If you have fifteen thousand people download two gigs off yeah. your server, it's like that's it's going to hammer you. And there's I I looked at Cloudflare video hosting. I looked at all sorts of things, and just the economics of it were crazy. It's hard so, to understand how how you know, Google you, makes it work with YouTube. To be honest, and it's a, it's cr- it's another it's one of those things that we've wound up with, where there's one and only one YouTube, and there's nothing else that's even vaguely yeah. like YouTube. And when it works, it is the most amazing thing. I forget what I I just was searching for uh, 
uh, a commercial the other day. Something. Oh, the the Casio G G Shock watch. Um, because there's a rumor that Apple's yep. going to make a rugged, rubbery, rugged version of Apple Watch, and I wanted to look up the the hockey puck version of the initial cast. And it's, of course they had it. Of course they did. And it was the first thing that came up. I was like, I just took a guess at the year. I was like, Casio 1983 G-Shock ad. First hit. There it was. Wow. And it, yeah. And that is amazing. amazing. Like, when you think about it, like, it because... <laughs> Because like really in 1983, amazing. that ad was on TV every day, and I saw it every day. And then by 1993, I certainly remembered it, but I would have had zero percent chance of finding a copy of it. Zero point zero zero. I mean, what was I? I don't. I wouldn't even know where to go. What? what, what call the Casio U.S. headquarters <laughs> and see if they'll send me a copy right. on VHS of a of an ad from ten years right. ago. You, you couldn't right. do it, right? Yeah. No, it's it's it is weird. It's a it's an incredible archive. It really is. Um, and yeah, and how does Google? I'd love to know the economics on it. Like what their what the what their what their expenses are for all of that bandwidth. You know what the, what they really are. But I think just the advertising. They make a lot of money advertising yeah. on YouTube. So my 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 goal is if I get, I have to get to four thousand hours viewed on my channel in public videos. Um, and then I can I can turn off all advertising because I think right now Google can still automatically put an ad on my stuff if even without me being able to say yes or no. So I have not turned on monetization for any of my videos. But the, if you cross a threshold, you're allowed to say never ever ever put an ad on my stuff. And so I'm I'm hoping that we get close to it with this video <laughs> so I can turn turn it's, off it, all the ads. So it's no a little weird that you that you have ad. to do it that way, but I guess it's sort of an anti-fraud type thing, like to keep a, a spammer from just creating an endless series yeah. of new channels just to keep putting their ads on. But what exactly their game would be to not have ads, I, I'm not quite sure. But I'm sure that YouTube has run into every single imaginable form of Fraud, (laughs) but no. But but to back to your question about the production of the video, it was like yeah, it was just it was just me. I brought a backpack with like twenty kilograms of photo equipment in it, a few lenses, a light, um, a tripod, and uh, and that was it. And the the hardest part was convincing the guy in the video to let me shoot him. You know, these old Kisa guys, they just, they can't see any of the value in what they're doing. They can't imagine why anyone would want to watch them do this or what, and and I think an element of him was, is this guy making fun of me? You know, there's kind of this, like, is this, is he, is this really, is he serious? Is is he, is he not taking the piss? And, um, you know, it was like, it was convincing Yamane-san. It was like, look, I know this is weird, but actually you make really beautiful kind of you know strangely interesting pizza toast what what's the and what's the deal with this, the way he slices the crust yeah he's so he he learned that he's been doing the cafe for 45 years and for the first 2 years before he opened he worked at this hotel in Yokohama and i guess one of the guys at the hotel in Yokohama who ran this fancy cafe would cut the toast in that way a little bit so what he's doing he's scoring it and he scores um, two sides of the crust 
down like 80%. And then he, he cuts the rest of it, he scores the rest of it so that when it comes out of the toaster, he's able to evenly split it into three mm. fingers, essentially. And then the reason why he cuts the crust down is that he, he has customers mm. who don't like crust. And so if you, the crust is cut almost off, but not entirely, you can peel it off if you don't like it. But if you want to keep it, because it's been separated from the body of the bread, it actually collects an extra oh, char. Right, right. So it create it creates this like nice mouthfeel and you get this like crunch from this crust that you wouldn't otherwise get. So that's that's the cutting <laughs> philosophy. It's a lovely, lovely movie. We, we I know we have to wrap it up, <laughs> but we were the other thing we were talking about, we we've slagged on some of Apple's software, but but you were talking about getting to know Final Cut Pro and talking that you found it to be a yeah. revelation in terms of being being good software. Oh, it's incredible. Well, have we slacked on Apple software? I feel like we've we've said we've we've been very laudatory right. of Mac OS and and we've said the old the twenty sixteen MacBook Pros are were horrible, which I think anyone would, would agree with that. And that iOS is just not it's not a you know, it's the the, the bones, the DNA of iOS is not to be Right. Super fluid, you know, to have that kind of that that fluency. I think that's a fair fair criticism. But but uh, Final Cut Pro X is amazing. I I I love it. I'm I'm entranced. It's some of the best software they got rid I've of the used. X. It's just Final Cut Pro now. When did they get rid of the X? I, think I thought they, the X. Was I think they got rid of recent. it because they got rid of the X in Mac OS X too. I don't know. Maybe. Oh. Oh wow! But right. uh, I don't use it because I don't. I haven't made a video. Uh, but when I did, I mean, I've I've made like a you know I have like my little goofy video where I show people how to take AirPods out of a out of a case the right way. Uh, even right. as a total punter, for lack of a better word, you could see that this is this is a great Mac app. Like it's not just a video editor; it is. It is the video editor that the Mac deserves. And I guess it's polarizing in some ways because some people, you know, if you don't like that Mac likeness of it, you're not going to like it. It's, you know, it's not Adobe Premiere. Um, but it also makes me wonder what and when Apple decides to make, you know, their, their Pro Tools group is such an interesting group. You know, like Logic is still a huge deal. But then they got rid yeah. of Aperture. Like, what the thinking is there yeah. is very strange to me. And and yeah. as Adobe moves Lightroom in this way that you mentioned before, where they seem to be pushing people towards the cloud version of Lightroom and away from the classic one, which is more of a Mac-style way of working, not in the cloud, but here, I want it on my Mac. Um that aperture decision just stands out to me as very hard to explain. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think it was, there's was probably a moment in Apple where they're like, we're going all in on photos. We're going to, we're going from iPhotos to photos. We're going to make photos super powerful. We want everyone to be, you know, we just want this to be the place that you put all of your, you know, pro or, or amateur, or whatever. It all goes in here. And I think that was just a flawed, uh, flawed yeah, philosophy. I don't know. Um, anyway, thank you so much for your time. So let's tell people where they can find out more stuff. So we'll put a link to we'll, uh, copious show notes. Uh, this is great. The show you've, you've done most of the work for me. 
but uh, we will link. <laughs> well, we did. We did talk about most. We of this did. Stuff. We did pretty good. This is actually for me. This is this is probably about as close as I ever stick to show notes. Uh, uh, I promise wow. to put a link to the to the movie on YouTube. Your website for special projects is just at craigmod.com. And your tweets where people can hurry up and read them before you delete them are on twitter.com slash <laughs> at Craig Mod. No at, just Craig Mod. Oh, just, that's right. You don't put the at in on Twitter. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I, I will also thank our sponsors for this episode. We had Flat File, where you can go and get your spreadsheets imported. Uh, we have Squarespace, the all-in-one web hosting solution. And Mac Weldon, where you can buy... Fresh underwear, socks, hoodies, and more. Anything Ooh. else you wanted to 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 mention, Craig? Before we part ways? No, just you know the best the best uh, the best way to if you're like oh I'm mean, I'm interested in this guy's stuff and I want to kind of support his stuff, but I don't want to be a member. The best thing to do is like check out the books. I'm just I just feel like I'm I'm really. I'm really proud of the the book work. So I'd say go there and uh, investigate that. But if you do become a a member, you get a big discount. Yeah. yeah. Well, (laughs) let me say this about the book. And if you went to the website and you looked at your website pages for the book and you're thinking, oh, I think I know what that book would be like. The book is exactly like that. (laughs) You know, there's just something... Interesting. I don't know how better to say it. It it the book has the exact vibe that I expected it to have, and it's it's truly lovely. Uh, great. Well, thank you, man. Typographically gorgeous as well, but of course. Thank you. I had uh, I had Frank Camaro's help on that. Oh man, that guy. I had this is the thing is like also independently producing this book. Um, you know, I'd talked to a bunch of agents and publishers in New York about doing a similar kind of book, um, but they were all, eh, you need to do something a little more normal first, and then you can do kind of this, because the book is a little experimental. Um, but, you know, doing it on my own, one of the one of the issues with quote-unquote so-called vanity publishing is that you often don't get to work with these like high-level amazing people that you can sometimes work with if you go to a big publisher. But... I've built up such a such a great group of friends who talented beyond me and hundred x uh, group of friends that uh, I'm able to call on. That you know the typography we did big sweeps with Frank Camaro, Rob Gampietro uh, chimed in, gave me some feedback. I was able to work with Gray three eighteen, one of the best cover designers in the world, to do a bunch of feedback on the production of the book. And then the editors I worked with are are two of the best editors, uh, you know, that I know, you know, and that in in their industry, in their in their in their their worlds, they're top of the top. So I think that's also kind of a weird quirk is that I don't think I could have made. I'm so satisfied with where this book landed that I it couldn't have landed in a better place in any other way. So I, like that's that's and I, I don't say that lightly. Well, you should be very proud. It is it is a it is a wonderful book. All right, Craig. Thanks for being on the show. Boom. Thanks, John.